It's 43 degrees in Waldorf right now. Vienna showing uh, 45, and Falls Church is also 44. That's it. That's all for me. Wishing you a fantastic first week of March 2020. Hope it comes in as the lamb it did, and hope the rest of March gives you the power of a lion. This is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University, NHD at 88.5 at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker and online at WAUAMU.org. It's 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we'll kick off Women's History Month with a series of meetups. Meet Millie, meet Miss Sherlock, and meet me in St. Louis. The first is a situation comedy, the second a detective series, and the third... Well, you know, it's a classic MGM musical with a brilliant score starring Judy Garland and adapted for us by Lux Radio Theater. There's treachery in the military on Gunsmoke, a suicide, or is it, on Dragnet, and a dive into the world of fine art dealing on The Whistler. It's a new month and a new week. Spring's just around the corner, so relax. Settle in, don't give a thought to last week, or last month, for that matter, they're both over. And don't worry about the week and the month ahead. Just try to think good thoughts about them. And if you can't, well, remember that they don't really start till tomorrow. For now, listen to another of the adventures we haven't played before on the big broadcast, and it's one that Johnny himself called the wildest case I ever handled. It's the doting dowager matter, and it comes from January 25th, 1959, CBS... And yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. George Reed here. Oh, hi, George. How are things at Floyd's of England? Very good, as a matter of fact. Very good. Well, now, it can't all be good. You wouldn't be calling me. Well, to tell the truth, I do have a small problem. Figures. No, figures, the word singular. Huh? A small figure, a statuette belonging to Mrs. Dora Harkness Ballin down in New York. Ballin? Yes, terribly wealthy, but a real eccentric. So what's happened? The little statue I mentioned, it's gone, disappeared. Oh, what's it worth? Insured value is $26.50. Wow. Uh, $26.50. Huh? 26 bucks and a half wouldn't even cover my expense account. Well, it just happens that she carries hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of personal property insurance with us. But for some reason or other, she attaches particular value to this statuette. Oh, I get it. You're afraid that if we don't go through the motions of trying to find it, she might take her insurance elsewhere. Precisely. Real important to you, huh? Very then I take it I won't have to be chintzy with the old expense account. Uh, well, now, Johnny... Okay, George, I'll be in touch. Bob Bailey in the intriguing adventures of a man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator... Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Now, act one of yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar. To Floyd's of England, North American office, Hartford, Connecticut. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the doting dowager matter. Expense account item one, seven ninety, taxi, train fare, and incidentals, Hartford to New York. Item two, a dollar even for a cab from Grand Central Station to the address of Mrs. Dora Harkness Ballon over on East 73rd Street. It turned out to be one of New York's famous old brownstone houses, well-preserved and reeking of an era long gone by. A uniformed butler ushered me into a large, high-ceiling drawing room, and I could hardly believe my eyes. Ornate pre-Victorian furnishings, heavy red velvet draperies, huge lamps and crystal chandeliers, oil paintings all over the place, and gilded mirrors. Pretty fabulous. If you will be kind enough to wait here, Mr. Dollar, I shall tell Mrs. Ballon that you have arrived. Thank you. I know that she'll want to see you. Oh, excuse me, Master Harold. It's all right. Uh, has the uh, the mail come? Uh, would you like me to check, sir? Uh, yes, good idea. You know how Aunt Dora likes to see it the minute it gets here. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, the mail. The dear old common everyday place. Uh, you're uh, here to see Mrs. Ballon? That's right. I'm Johnny Dollar. I'm Hal Winters, her nephew. Hi. Uh, say, tell me something. Yes? About this little statue that's missing. You mean that little chunk of pot metal that's disappeared? Oh, is that what it is? Oh, yes, just a piece of junk. But a couple of months ago, Aunt Dora decided it looked like her grandfather when he was a general back in the Civil War. Oh? Why does she value it so highly? I expect the general was the only Ballon who had guts enough to do anything on his own. What do you mean? I mean, instead of just living off the family shipping fortune. So when she suddenly decided the statue looked like the general, uh, Johnny Dollar, did you say? That's right. The insurance investigator? Yes. Well, now, why should she bother you with it? I don't know. Uh, truly, Mr. Dollar, it's not worth it. If I were you, I'd forget it. And now, if you'll excuse me, I'd better see if the morning mail has arrived. Hal, uh, just when did the statue disappear and from where? Uh, Tana discovered it missing from the reception room yesterday morning. Now, if you'll pardon me... Was the house broken into? Possibly. But there was no sign of it. How about guests? No, we haven't had guests for a week or more. How many servants are there? Uh, Mr. Dollar, perhaps there's something I'd better tell you about that statue. The statue of the general? I tell you, Mr. Dollar... You are, Mr. Dollar, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. I tell you that if you don't find out who stole it and get it back, I'll cancel every bit of my insurance. Sit down. Thank you. Harold, my dear, ring for Higgins and have him see if the morning mail has come. I was about to go out and look for it myself, Tyler. Let Higgins do it. It's quite all right. I don't mind. I said let Higgins do it. Well, I... All right. But if you'll excuse me now... Oh? Why why I'd like to go up to my room for a moment. To call up that, that girlfriend of yours again? <laughs> Sit down. Yes, Tonda. You and that girl, that Nancy Gavin. She'd like to take you away from me, wouldn't she? Aunt Dora. Where would you go? What would you live on? And what would I do? Darling, I hardly think this is the proper Much as thing. I like Nancy Gavin, I see no reason why I should let her take you away from me. Do you? Uh, I... Uh, uh, Mrs. Ballon, uh, about the statue. No? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Mr. Dollar, 
You are to leave no stone unturned. Wow, now tell me... Uh, I beg your pardon, ma'am. Oh, Higgins, why do you sneak in on us this way? Well, what is it? The mail just arrived, and knowing you'd want to see it... Give it to Harold. Uh, uh, yes, here, I'll take care of it. Uh, well? What letter? Uh, no postmark. What? And it's so badly scrawled in pencil. Well, well don't bother Aunt Dora with it now. Uh, but it's marked personal, sir. Well, then let me have it. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, Tonta. You may go now, Higgins. Uh, yes, ma'am. Uh, here, Tonta, suppose you let me see what it's all about. Be quiet, Harold. Now, Mr. Dollar. Well, uh, <clears throat> first of all, I'd like you to tell me... Oh, what's the matter, Mrs. Ballum? Uh, Aunt Dora, what is it? This... This letter. Yes? It's... It's a ransom note. Ransom? For the return of a statuette. The general. They want $75,000. What? Act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. This, this letter, Mr. Dollar... Maybe you'd better let me see it, Mrs. Ballin. It's a ransom note demanding $75,000 for the return of my statuette of the general. $75,000? Yes, Harold. Oh, they can't be serious. For oh, that little piece of pot metal? Sure, they must be out of their minds. I beg your pardon. What? That statue means everything to me. It happens to be a memento of my grandfather, the famous General Horace Harkness Ballon. At least, it looks like him. But good heavens, Aunt Dora, 75,000. Oh? Do you object because it will mean that much less for you when I die, Harold? Of course not. I wasn't even thinking of such a thing. Well, don't. At your age, with your lack of experience and getting along on your own, money like that would only do you harm. Would it? Yes. You'd probably leave me, strike out on your own, perhaps even marry, and heaven only knows what would happen. Mrs. Ballin, are you really serious about paying this, this ransom? I have the money. I have it right here in the safe. And if it will bring back the general... Look, why don't you let me see what I can do about it first? And have it destroyed... Destroy. Well, here, read the letter. It was the usual sort of thing, poorly written on cheap paper and scribbled in pencil. And it simply said that the money in unmarked bills was to be turned over to her nephew, Harold. That instructions for its delivery would be given to him later, secretly. That if he then divulged the place and manner in which he was to make the payment, his life would be in danger. Don't you see, Mr. Dollar? If we don't do as they say, they might kill him. It further said that if the police were brought in, the statue would be destroyed. I have no choice, Mr. Dollar. I'll pay the ransom. Tonta. Harold, you will take it to them, whoever they are, when you receive their instructions. Well, they, they threatened me. Only if we don't obey instructions. All right, now look, Mrs. Ballin. Yes, Tonta, listen to Mr. Dollar. I have told you I must have the general back at any cost. Very well. No one is to leave this house, except Harold, of course, when he is told to by the, the kidnapper. Mrs. Ballin, I won't let you do this. You what? It's utter nonsense for you to consider paying out that kind of money for a cheap little Jake. piece of junk that can't possibly be worth anything to whoever took it. 
Except perhaps for its effect on you. I told you, young man, it's the one priceless memento I have of the great General Ballard. Yeah, you told me. Very well. You are here on my orders, are you not? Well, yes. All right. Then you will remain subject to my orders. Very well, now. Hi, Hello. everybody. Nancy. Well, what's everybody looking so glum about? Hi, sweetie. Hello, Mrs. Barron. Miss Gavin. Uh, Mr. Dollar, this is Nancy Gavin, a, a friend of Harold. Johnny Dollar? Hi. Hey, I know about you. Nancy, dear. You come to find that whatchamacallit that Mrs. Barron lost? It was stolen. Okay, stolen. And the... The kidnappers are demanding $75,000 ransom. That's easy. Pay it. I shall. And Nancy, you are to stay right here in this house until this whole thing is over with. Auntie, I don't mind that a bit. Do we, Hal? Forward, wench. Seriously, Auntie, when are you going to let Hal marry me? Get out on his own. And leave me? Do you think for one minute that my precious Harold would do that? Why don't you answer that, Hal? Mr. Dollar, this is none of your business. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the reason for your being here. You know something, Mrs. Ballon? I'm beginning to think you're wrong. You came here to find the statue that was stolen from me. That's right. And maybe I'm on the track of it now. So how about it, Hal? Would you leave your aunt if you could? It was a wild guess, but the more I thought about it, the more I decided that Harold Winter's answer might solve this case for me. Yeah, and that Mrs. Ballon would be pretty shocked when I put my finger on the thief, the writer of that ransom note. But you know something? I was dead wrong. Act three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Doting Dowager Matter. Mr. Dollar, this is none of your business. It has nothing whatsoever to do with the reason for your being here. You know something, Mrs. Ballon? I'm beginning to think you're wrong. So answer the question, Hal. Would you leave your aunt if you could? Yes. Yes, I would. What? You bet he would, Aunt Dora. You know he would. If you just break down and admit he's no longer a child to be tied to your apron string... Nancy. Give him a break and enough money to get by for a week or two and he'll show you. Don't you want him to amount to anything? Of course I do. Well, he can't as long as you keep him tied up to you this way. But he needs me. Does he? Maybe he needs somebody like me. Somebody who loves him and will help him get somewhere. Help him to accomplish the things he can accomplish. You do love him, don't you? You bet I do. But so do I. And he loves me. He'd love you a lot more if he weren't so tied down to you. Harold? It's true, Aunt Dora. I never knew you even thought about leaving me. About going out on your own, as you put it. Because you never gave me a chance. Because you never thought of anyone but yourself. I'm sorry, Mr. Dollar. What? I mean that you've had to become involved in a family fight. Well, I'm not. Because now I think I know where to look for that statuette. Oh? Well, I uh, wish you luck. 
Uh, come, Nancy, I want to talk to you. Sure, honey, I want to talk to you. Too. Now, wait just a minute. No, Mr. Dollar, let them go. Yeah, because but... I want to talk to you. Now, look, isn't it pretty obvious? I knew that something was wrong when I first got here. Hal hadn't known you were going to call me in. I So that didn't. when he saw me here... You didn't? No. It was my kind, thoughtful butler Higgins who called your insurance company. And he shouldn't have. The fact remains that when Hal saw me here, he tried to stop that ransom note he'd planted in your mail. Oh, now, wait, Now, please. about that ransom note. It was badly written, much too badly written, by someone who was trying to hide his identity. I'll wager that paper it was scribbled on came from right here in this house. Probably. And I'll bet that if I accuse him of it, Hal will break down and admit that he wrote it. Wait, Mr. Dollar. Yeah? I devoted many years to the care and upbringing of my nephew. I realize that. In the hope that he would someday go out on his own, accomplish something himself. Well, now listen. I know. Perhaps over the years I made him too dependent I'd on I'd say me. yes to that. But that's because I am as I am and I can't change. But I kept hoping that he would change. That somehow, sometime, he would make just one desperate move to break away from me. But it would have to be of his own doing. So? For years, people have called me eccentric. And I've enjoyed the reputation. So I made a fuss over that cheap little statuette that I picked up in Coney Island one time as a child. Huh? Of course. That was the only sentimental value it had. But according to Harold... Oh, now, should I have picked one of the valuable artworks, paintings, or sculptures that I really care about in my selfish way for this little experiment? So you gave the worthless statuette the big build-up? Yes. And he fell for it. He believed that if it was stolen, I'd give almost anything to get it back. And then finally, he got up enough nerve to do something about it. Now, just a minute. Just a minute. What you're telling me is that you're tickled pink that you've made a thief out of him. I'm tickled pink that he's finally shown some guts and gumption. And you can't call him a thief over that piece of junk. But it has a price of 75000 on it. That's what he'll be stealing, if you give him that money and let him walk out of here with it. No, oh, no, he won't. What else can you call it? I like to be eccentric, remember? Oh, Mrs. Fallon. So the note I'll enclose with it, you know, when he tells me he's received instructions about where and how it's to be delivered. What note? In it, I'll say, dear Harold, the best of luck to you and Nancy. I hope you'll be tremendously happy. And I hope that now and then you'll drop in on your loving and now somewhat lonesome Aunt Dora. I see. Oh, and I think I'll enclose a few extra thousand, just in case. And as a kind of extra wedding present. Extra wedding present? Of course. The statuette. I certainly don't want them to bring that atrocity back here. Oh, no, well, don't you? Wait. Uh, yes, dear? I, uh, I just wondered if Mr. Dollar has decided how he wants to proceed with his investigation. Well, Mr. Dollar? Well... After getting what information I could from your aunt, what little information I could... Yes? Al, I've decided to give up the case. Yes, Harold. You may as well show Mr. Dollar to the door. Whatever you say, Tonner. Yeah. Goodbye, Mrs. Ballin. Oh, and maybe you'd better phone the insurance company about the extra fee I'm to get on this case. Oh, I did. Right after Higgins told me he'd called them. But if he's giving up the case, dear... Show him to the door, Harold. Uh, yes. This way, Mr. Dollar. Yeah. 
Fairfax. Now you listen, Hal. I can tell by your look that you've learned something, Mr. Dollar. I have. Perhaps even more than I know. So, look here. Huh? Do you think this will do for the sequel to the ransom note? What? You know, the instructions about where I'm to take the money. Oh, now wait a minute. You mean to say... You mean you knew? Are you kidding? That's why I tried to discourage you in the beginning. But will somebody please tell me? Tell me why? Tata, just being herself. You don't think for a minute she'd have just handed me the money, would have admitted she wants Nancy and me to get hitched. Don't you see? That would spoil her reputation for being an eccentric. Oh, and if you like, I'll send you the statuette when this is all over, as a souvenir. Believe me, I've handled some pretty wanky cases over the years. But this was by long odds the wankiest. And yet, why complain when it's a good living? Expense account total including all the incidentals I could think of and fare back to Hartford. What? $17.80? Ami. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Next week, well, if you've ever read the personal columns of your newspaper, you'll surely want to hear it. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Virginia Gregg, Eleanor Audley, G. Stanley Jones, Eric Snowden, and Sam Edwards. In the words of F. Scott Fitzgerald, let me tell you about the very rich. They're different from you and me. A wild case indeed, the doting dowager matter from the winter of 1959, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Audrey Totter was a hard-working actress who appeared in nearly a hundred movies and TV shows from the 1940s through the 80s. And most of her roles were in film noir and dramas where she was often cast as a tough-talking dame, as they said back then. But she could do comedy, too, and from 1951 through 54, she starred in a radio situation comedy set in New York called Meet Millie. If it's true that you can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been, then it's appropriate that we kick off Women's History Month with an episode of that series. It amply demonstrates what most radio producers, and most audiences for that matter, took as a given back in the day that the goal of any right-thinking young woman was marriage, preferably to a wealthy man. The cast of Meet Millie included the veteran B. Benaderet, who was also working in TV at the time as George Burns and Gracie Allen's next-door neighbor, Blanche Morton. Also in hand was Marvin Kaplan, whom you may remember as the third member of the trio that tore apart the gas station in the movie It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, 
along with Arnold Stang and Jonathan Winters. The comedy cliché of the wealthy Texas oil man who comes to New York and backs a Broadway show or starts a swank nightclub is the setup for this episode, and you'll hear references to the limited auto sales during World War II and to R.H. Macy, founder of the department store chain. From CBS, it's the September 11th, 1951 edition of Meet Millie. And now, Meet Millie, created by Frank Galen and starring Audrey Totter. Well, the pride and joy of J.R. Boone and Son, after its sterling secretary, Millie Bronson, is its star customer, Mr. E.K. Weems. Now, Mr. Weems is from Texas which means that he owns not only the millions of dollars necessary to qualify for citizenship in that state, but a few more besides. Well, sir, lying awake one night, wondering how to spend his money before it smothered him, Mr. Weems decided to open a nightclub in New York, where it's badly needed. Out of his affection for J.R. Boone and Son, and for Millie in particular, he has invited the entire personnel of the firm to the opening of his club. And tonight is the big night. Therefore, we find Millie in one of the town's largest department stores, accompanied by Mama, shopping for some last-minute items. Mama, come on already. My lunch hour is almost up. I'm coming, dear. I'm right there. Billy, look. Look at this table. Ooh, I can't stand it. Cotton gloves reduced 89 cents from 98. What a bargain. Quick with frost eyes. Ooh, it's like stealing. <laughs> Mom, I thought you were going to stop that business of buying stuff you don't need just because it's a bargain. Here's a pair of green, a pair of brown, navy. Mama. Don't just stand there, pick out gloves, a pair of royal blue, a pair of dusty pink. Here's a pair with fingers in it. <laughs> Mama, you're squeezing my hand. <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, calm down and listen to me. All right, so 89 cents is a wonderful price for gloves that used to be 98. But how do you know they're even your size? Don't fit, don't fit. I can talk. They look awful small to me. I can tell, I told you. Look, I'll put this pair on. I'll put it on. There. That's fine. Now, what are you going to wear on the other two fingers? So they're small, but Millie, I know. They're a bargain. You hate to pass them up. Mama, when you get into a department store, you're just like a wild animal. You know, you know it's true, isn't it? Yes. I try to fight it, Honor. But as soon as I see that word reduced, I'm a gone goose. <laughs> a little voice within me keeps saying, buy a bargain, buy a bargain, buy a bargain. <laughs> Mama, that little voice belongs to R.H. Macy. <laughs> you're right, honey. And I won't be silly about these clubs. After all, suppose they are only 89 cents. They don't fit me and the colors are terrible. I'll take six pair and that's all. Mama. Okay, okay. Three pairs. No pairs. I got to get back. We're leaving. Now, come on. All right. I guess... Millie. Huh? Look at that man over at the jewelry counter. Isn't that... Why, it's Mr. Wayne. Yeah. The man who's giving the party tonight, the millionaire Texan. Oh, Millie, let's talk to him. Maybe he'll invite me to his party tonight, too. I'm dying to go. Mommy, you know the party's only for our employees, and that's why you... Oh, my gosh, look. I think he sees us. Yeah, he's coming over here. Yeah, now, please, Mama. No hinting about the party. Please, come. Well, sure, sure, I promise. Well, bulldog me for a heifer if it ain't Millie Bronson. 
My little old K-pop. Yeah. And also big old cow eyes. <laughs> well, how are you, girl? We're fine, Miss Ewing. Oh, sure. I'm helping Millie buy a few last-minute things for your party tonight. Oh, shuckings, Mama, a pretty little filly like Millie don't have to spend no money on clothes. She'd look good if she didn't have nothing to wear. <laughs> Oh, I didn't mean that the way it sounded, little lady. My tongue just got out of the wrong shoe. Oh, that's okay. Well, Millie, honey, we're sure going to have us a time tonight in my new club. Are we? Oh, that's wonderful, Miss Ewing. Yeah. And by the way, if I happen not to see you there, good luck. Uh, Well, why shouldn't you see me there, Mama? On account of I wasn't invited. Well, bless my soul, you're invited right now. Thank you. <laughs> oh, Mama, aren't you ashamed? Tonight I'll go to the party. Tomorrow I'll be ashamed. <laughs> well, I, I want to tell you, you folks is going to see the prettiest darn nightclub you ever laid your eyes on when you walk through the door of my place tonight. I hear you spared no expense. Oh, that's right, honey. You know what to say. You can't take it with you. If I had as much money as you have, I wouldn't go. Wouldn't go. Wouldn't go. Oh, if that ain't a ding-donger, wouldn't go. How can anything so sharp come out of anyone so round? Mr. Wings, you'll have me blushing. Tell us more about your nightclub, huh? Well, my big idea just didn't work out, and I was so disappointed. What idea was that? Well, you know them places where you catch your own fish and they cook it up for you? Yeah. Well, I wanted to let the customers ride out on the floor and rope their own steak. No. Well, trouble was I couldn't find waiters who'd let the customers ride them. Sometimes these unions have pretty silly rules, huh, Mr. Weems? Oh, they sure do. Well, we'll have us a good time anyhow, Melly. I got the place of honor all reserved for you, right at the head of my table. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Williams, but I promised Mr. Boone Jr. I'd sit with him. Oh, my. Can't you get out of it? No. Oh, please. Put it, please, with money on it. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Uh, of course, I got no particular place to sit. <laughs> well, maybe if you asked him real nice, he'd let you, huh? Well, I promised him, Mr. Williams. Oh, shut him. Of course, I could sit anywhere. <laughs> you mean little old me is going to be left all by his lonesome? Yoo-hoo. <laughs> <coughs> oh, it's going to be mighty lonely at my table with no one to liven it up, Melly. Just all so quiet and lonely. A pretty girl is like a melody. Body-o-do, body-o-do, body-o-do. Hey, Mom. How'd you like to sit at my table tonight? Oh, me? You mean me? <laughs> okay, if you like. <laughs> Quite settled, then. You can let go of my lapel. <laughs> you're, you're a very good-natured man, Mr. Wayne. Oh, darn if I'm. Well, see you kids tonight. I gotta go back to my office now and try and straighten out the darn financial mess I'm in. You're having trouble? Oh, I sure am. Three of my accountants quit all at once last week and I can't get me no new. Meanwhile, the money's just piling up at the office and we're four days behind in counting. <laughs> 
enough to drive a man crazy. <laughs> sure is. If I can only figure out a way to keep the dad gum stuff from coming in so we could catch you. Well, what's the matter? Uncle Sam doesn't take it away from you fast enough? Well, up to last week he did, but six more oil wells come in where they had no business to, and now I can't pay no more income tax till they design a new bracket for me. At least you've got your health. Well, that's true. Well, I didn't mean to depress you like that. I'll see you tonight and bye now. Bye, Mr. Wayne. Bye. He's a nice man, isn't he, Mama? He's a doll. And he's crazy about you, Millie. Yeah, I know. To think you're wasting your time with a playboy like Mr. Boone Jr. when he's a good, solid, millionaire-type fellow who wants to get married. How do you know he wants to get married? I can tell. There's a look in a man's eye when he's ready. A sort of a what's-the-use-of-living-anymore look. <laughs> well, that's the look I'm going to put in Mr. Boone Jr.'s art. Yeah, but Junior just isn't the marrying kind, Millie. Now, that's a silly statement. Look, didn't you say just last night you're not getting anywhere with Junior? Just going out and not getting serious? Well, that isn't what I meant. For two months now, he's been taking you to theaters, nightclubs, restaurants, buying you gifts. Candy, flowers, jewelry. Time he stopped with the gifts and made with the community property. <laughs> Mom, I won't hear another word. I love Junior and he loves me. And I'm not going to hurry him if he doesn't want to hurry. Come on now, i got to get back to the office. All right. But if you're going to have children and I'm going to be their grandmother, I want it to be while I'm still young enough to be looking around for their grandfather. <laughs> Oh, Mama, come on. Hi, Martin. Hi, Millie. What's the matter, Millie? Is something wrong? Oh, I don't know. I I guess I'm just kind of mixed up, Morton. Oh? Well, the thing to do is to talk about it, Millie. Unbiting the mind of its heavy load and the heart is lighter, too. Why, Morton, that's beautiful. Where did you read that? It's on a sign over the door of the third degree room down at the police station. <laughs> and they say cops are heartless. Yeah. Well, what is this bothering you, Millie? Well, I, I'm all mixed up about Mr. Boone Jr. He's interested in me. That is, I think he is. He's no good for you, Millie. And Mr. Weems seems to be interested in me, too. He's no good for you, either. Martin Rappaport. He's good for you. <laughs> Martin, please. I'm sorry. But the whole thing is this. Mama says Mr. Weems is a marrying con, but Mr. Boone isn't. At least he doesn't seem to be. Well, you can't tell me. Mr. Boone may be the marrying kind, too. Maybe you just have to encourage him a little. You think so? You know the proverb. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, you've led Mr. Boone to water. Now you think I should push his nose in it, is that it, huh? <laughs> the trouble with you is you're too ladylike. You have to force the idea of marriage into his consciousness. Yeah, maybe you're right. I'll be right back, Dad. Here he comes, Edith Morton. Okay, don't forget my advice. Oh, there you are, Millie. Where have you been all morning? Well, uh, I've been having a little talk with my mother, Mr. Boone. We were discussing marriage. Marriage? Yes, you know. The stuff single people do to stop being. <laughs> I see. Uh, just for the sake of argument, Mr. Boone, what do you think of marriage? 
Oh, I can't think of anything better for the sake of argument. Mr. Boone, I'm serious. <laughs> How do you feel personally about it? Well, Millie, I, uh, I feel this way. When a fellow meets a girl he wants to marry, he should marry her because a wife should be married by the man who's to be her husband. Otherwise, the wife of the husband wouldn't be married to the husband of the wife, and the wife's husband wouldn't be the man who married the wife in the first place. <laughs> See? Something like a true tobacco auction here. <laughs> Mr. Boone, are you by any chance teasing me? Frankly, yes. That's what I thought. Now, I want a concrete answer. Well, Millie... Come on, do you or do you not plan to get married at an early age? Well, uh, you see, my plans are, uh, well, what I'm trying to say is... John, come in here. I need you. Coming, Dad. I needed you, too. <laughs> See you later, Millie. You bet you will. What is that? Weems just called. He says he has no date for the party tonight, and he wants you to get him one. A date? Yeah. How about that Gloria Vanderley? Think you might like her? I don't know. How does a guy like that judge a girl? The usual way to do things in Texas, I guess. You probably trot her around the room, listen to her breathe, and count her teeth. <laughs> I'll tell Gloria to wear her best saddle. Oh, hello, Mrs. Vanderley. Johnny Boone. Fine, thanks. Is Gloria in? Oh, well, have her call me, will you? A friend of mine needs a date for a big party he's giving tonight, so if she's free and would like to go... Okay, fine. No, no, I have to go out now, but she can leave a message. Thanks, bye. She's in the tub. She'll call back in a minute or two. Fine. Where are you off to? Oh, I have to run out and pick up a black tie for my tux. I'll tell Millie to take the message. See you later. Okay. Millie. Oh, hi, Morton. Hi. Yes, Mr. Boone? I'll be gone about ten minutes. Gloria Vanderlee is going to return my call. Would you take the message, please? Certainly. Thanks. See you in a few minutes. Now, what does that mean, calling Gloria Vanderlee? Yeah. Are you worried, Millie? Me? Worried? Don't be silly. Why should I worry she calls a homely, skinny girl? But, Millie, Gloria Vanderlee's a beautiful girl. I know, and I'm worried. <laughs> That's what I thought. I don't get it. He hasn't even asked me to go out with him to the party tonight. Really asked me, I mean. I just sort of understood it. I wonder if he could have some... Say, I Boone and son... Miss Gloria Vanderlee, a message? Yes. Tell him you'd love to go to the... Go where? Oh, yes. You're welcome. Millie, you're white as a sheep. I should be. I feel like I've just had my corners tucked in. <laughs> what are you talking about? Mr. Boone Jr. invited another girl to go to the party. No. Yes. Oh, that cad, that swine... I'd horsewhip him within an inch of my life if I didn't need this job. Don't be silly, Morton. He's under no obligation to me. He can pick his own friend. Millie, I don't like that deadly calm in your voice. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to the party on the arm of a man who's worth six John Boone Juniors. Millie, really? Yes. I'm going to phone him right now. Oh. Well, for a second there, I was sure living. Waldorf Weems, Astoria. Good afternoon. Waldorf Weems, Astoria. Yes, we have a new owner. Whom did you wish to speak to, please? Mr. Weems, please. One moment. T.K. Weems speaking, state your bed. Mr. Weems, this is Millie Bronson. Millie, 
gracious living, I'm sitting here naked from my waist up. Wait till I put a shirt on. Go ahead, I've got my eyes closed. Now, now what can I do for you, Melly, honey? How would you like to take me to the party tonight? Take you to the... One moment, please. Mr. Weems just tore out the phone. Here he is. Melly. Melly, you there? I'm here. Melly, did you just say what I thought you just said, or did I just think that you said it? I said it, Mr. Weems. My plans have changed, and I'd like to be your guest. Oh, Melly, honey, dumpling, baby, you have made me as happy as a poor shoat in a blue mud hole. Uh, what time do you want my car and truck to come by for you? Did you say car and truck? Yes, and of course, Arge, I got mine for you is kind of big. Oh, I see. Well, how about 8.30, Mr. Weems? 8.30 it is, but just foot. Huh? Don't call me Mr. Weems, honey. To you, I am just plain Weems. I'll remember that. Bye, Weemsy. Oh, hot dog. And now, before we continue with Meet Millie, starring Audrey Totter, I want to remind you that sometimes they're funny, sometimes they tear your heartstrings out. But every story reflects the mood of the American people because the public writes the adventures of Dr. Christian on CBS Radio. Join us again tomorrow night on most of these same CBS stations when Dr. Christian unfolds another of his unusual stories written by one of his audience of millions. Well, as Shakespeare said, when did the course of true love e'er run smooth? Which is being proven a mighty good question by our Millie and her boyfriend, Mr. Boone Jr. Under the misapprehension that the latter has invited another girl to Mr. Weems' party, Millie made a date with Mr. Weems himself, unaware that the girl Junior invited was for Mr. Weems. Anything can happen as we join Millie at the office with her shipping clerk admirer, Morton Rappaport. Well, I guess I'll show Mr. Boone a thing or two tonight. It saves him right. The idea of asking Gloria Vanley to go to that party with him instead of you. When he comes back here, I'm going to be so cold to him, he'll think he's talking to an iceberg. Yeah? Then how come you're fixing your lipstick and powdering your nose? What's the matter? Didn't you ever hear of a sexy iceberg? Uh-oh. I think I just heard him get off the elevator. I better get back to the stock room. Give it to him. Don't worry. Hi. Did I get my call, Miss Bronson? You did. Miss Vanderlee wished to inform Mr. John R. Boone, Jr. that she would be happy to accept his kind invitation to the party tonight. Well, that's a load off my mind. Yes, yeah, quite a load. She weighs 175 if she weighs an ounce. <laughs> What's that? I never chew my cabbage twice. <laughs> what are you talking about? Nothing. Nothing at all. Millie, is something the matter? What is it? It's nothing, I told you. Go to your office and forget it. Okay, I will go. So go. I'm going. And as far as I'm concerned, you can have all the days of Gloria Vanderly you want. Gloria Vanderly? My mistake was in believing you were sincere in what you said in the tunnel of love at 
Coney only Saturday, quote, I wish I had brought along an anchor, unquote. <laughs> I have no date with Gloria. I got her from Mr. Weems. I've been brought up to believe that when a fellow expresses himself in such a manner, he implies it for Mr. Weems. Of course, you silly girl. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, my goodness, I've done something terrible. Huh? See, even with you, I told Mr. Weems I'd go to the party with him. I have to call him up and break the date. Why should you? Why upset Weems that way? Huh? Go with him. After all, we'll all be at the same party, even if we're at different tables. I'll take Gloria, and I'll see you there. But, but, but Johnny... It's the only sensible thing to do, Millie. Well, I'll see you later. I have to clean up my desk. Oh, men. Of all the sexes ever invented, they're the vilest. <laughs> oh, that miserable no good. Is he gone? Yes, he's gone. And he doesn't care a bit that I made a date with another man for the night. How do you like that? Well, of course he doesn't care. Why should he? He knows you're crazy about him. That's it. He figures Mr. Weems doesn't have a chance. Sure. He's taking it for granted. Well, we'll see about that. No man takes Millie Bronson for granted. After that party, he won't feel so sure of me. Yeah? What are you going to do? What am I going to do? What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to... I'm going to... I don't know, but I'll think of something. <laughs> oh, Millie, isn't this the most beautiful nightclub you ever saw? Yeah, it's kind of cute, I guess. Yeah. And such clever table decorations. I just love these little oil wells at every place. I wish they'd train them to behave better. Mine just gushed all over my ice cream. Good, good. That's a sign you're going to have good luck? Yeah, some good luck I'm going to have. Sitting here watching Junior dance with that Gloria Vanderly. Look at him. Hmm? He is holding her kind of close. The way she's built, there's no other way to hold her. <laughs> Relax. Why worry about him? Concentrate on Mr. Weems. I'm telling you, he's the marrying kind. For heaven's sakes, when he comes back to the table, be nice to him. Look, they stopped dancing. And Junior's walking around from table to table. Hey. Huh? Mama, I just got an idea and you got to help me. I'm going to make Junior sick with jealousy. <laughs> Why worry about Junior? Pay attention to Mr. Weems. Please, Mama. Okay, I'm listening. I see Mr. Weems coming back to the table. Junior's walking around the place. When he gets near this table where he can see me, I want you to give me a signal, and I'll make believe I'm in love with Mr. Weems. Then as soon as Junior's out of sparring range, you can give me another high sign, and I'll stop. Okay? A fine thing to make of your own poor mother a traffic signal. <laughs> it's Mr. Weems I feel sorry for. He won't know what's going on. No, but he'll enjoy it on and off. Here he comes. I don't forget to give me the signals now. I won't. Well, how are you doing, gal? Sorry I had to leave you, lady. Oh, that's all right. You having a good time? Oh, sure. Your nightclub is just beautiful, and the western decorations are lovely. Millie, Millie, here he comes, Junior. And the food, Mr. Weems. It's delicious. And the service. The service. Uh, yes. It's, it's just... Mm. Hot dog. <laughs> Uh, would you repeat that comment on the service, please, ma'am? Oh, I just love everything about it. Oh, sugar, no. When you put your arms around me like that, I feel like rolling Fort Worth into a ball and dropping it on the desk. <laughs> uh, tell me again about the service. You bet. 
Oh, ma'am. Nellie, <laughs> he's turned his back. Uh, just one more, honey. The service, the... How you like it, huh? It's fair. <laughs> no, no, no. What you said about it before, you know. Oh, oh, I said I liked it. That's right. Well, I'm waiting. For what? Melly, you feel all right? Of course. I guess I dreamed it. Well, skip it, sugar. Well, let's see. We're talking about my nightclub. You like the orchestra? Well... Nellie, he's looking. Do I like it? Oh, that orchestra. It's marvelous. It's... It's... Oh, I'm having that dream again. <laughs> Oh, it's the most wonderful orchestra I ever heard. Where did you ever find it? I don't remember, but starting tomorrow, they all get raised to $1,000 a week. Millie, cut. Oh, honey, pluck her up and tell me all about that orchestra, man by man. I've heard better. Well, this is the first dream I ever had on an alternating current. You're spilling a drink. No, I ain't spilled it, honey. I'm pouring it out. There comes a time in a man's life when he knows he's had enough. I don't mind seeing things, but when I can feel him kissing me, it is time to quit. Oh, that poor man. Millie, how could you? Look, it worked, Mama. Junior's coming over here. Look at poor Mr. Weems over there. He's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's shaking his head. Now he's coming back to the table. Junior will hear you. Oh, I bet he's burning. Well, hello, Millie, Mrs. Bronson. Having fun? Oh, yeah, wonderful, Johnny. Yes, the food is delightful, don't you think? How do you know? A moment ago, I had the impression that your dinner consisted of Mr. Weems. <laughs> Jealous? Well, no, just curious. How does he taste? <laughs> well, you, you, you don't even care. Hello, Junior. Well, hello, E.K. Hi, Mr. Boone. I think that was an awful thing to say about Texas. Huh? Who said an awful thing about Texas? <laughs> what are you talking about? You. I don't think it's at all fair to say the reason Texans think their state is high heaven is because that's what it smells to. <laughs> he, he said that? I never. Junior men have died for saying less than that about Texas and better jokes, too. Put your hands up. Now look here, E.K. Put your hands up, I said. Okay, you asked for it. You're going to get it. Oh, no. Excuse me, I'll just take him out and put him with the garbage. I'll be right back. Johnny. Oh, Mama, what did I do? You think I killed him? Don't be silly. Now listen to your Mama. This is the crossroads of your life, Millie, and Mother knows best. Don't run after that, Junior. You be nice to Mr. Weems. I said it before, and I'll say it again. He's the marrying kind. Yeah, maybe you're right. There we are. Turn him over to the head waiter. He'll take care of him. Well, sit down, everybody. Sit down. Oh, thank you, Mr. Weems. I'd love to. Oh, Melly. Children, when your mouth drips honey that away, I just wish that I was a little old bee so as I could take you home to my hive. <laughs> I guess Mama was right. Uh, Mama? Yeah, she said you were the marrying kind. Are you, Mr. Weems? Oh, I sure am, honey. You like children. Oh, I love them. You see, Millie? <laughs> I always wanted six. Well, good. That'll make 19 altogether, counting the 13 I already got from my five previous wives. <laughs> You've been married five times? Uh, yes, and you see, uh, during the war, I couldn't trade in my Cadillac every year, so I had to do something. 
Nellie, you want me to just go away and never come back? <laughs> Five wives and 13 kids. Excuse me, folks. Nellie, where are you going? Out to the garbage to find Junior. Huh? Five wives and 13 kids. How'd you ever find time to dig those oil wells? <laughs> Heard on tonight's show were B. Benadaret as Mama Bronson... Bill Tracy as Morton, Rye Billsbury as Mr. Boone Jr., Earl Ross as Mr. Boone Sr., Barton Yarborough as Mr. Weems, and Gene Tatum as the operator. Music was composed and conducted by Irving Miller. Don't forget, next week at this same time, when you have another date to meet Millie, starring Audrey Totter. Produced and directed by Frank Galen, and written by Frank Galen, Bill Manhoff, and Roland McLean. Bob Lamont speaking. The story of Francis Scott Key, the patriot who wrote the words to our national anthem, will be dramatized on James Hilton's CBS radio program next Thursday evening. We cordially invite you to enjoy James Hilton's stirring presentation of the story of Francis Scott Key on his regular Thursday broadcast over most of these same CBS stations. just had a feeling all would end well, didn't you? In that episode of the situation comedy Meet Millie from the late summer of 1951 and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. 2020 is the last year of the 75th anniversary of World War II and of our commemoration of it. By March of 1945, the tide of the war had turned. The Allies had matters well in hand, and their leaders had met the month before in the Black Sea Resort of Yalta to begin to structure the post-war world order. It demanded tough negotiating among British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, and our own president, Franklin Roosevelt. The day after his return, FDR addressed Congress. It was on this date, 75 years ago, and it was the president's last major speech. We have a very short excerpt of it. It lasted nearly an hour, and some people hear in it some signs of FDR's failing health, including his acknowledgement of his polio, which he almost never referred to in public. From just after noon on March 1st, 1945, here is CBS anchor Bill Henry introducing the broadcast of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's report to Congress. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Bill Henry speaking to you from the floor of the House of Representatives, where a joint session of the House and the Senate is about to hear a message from President Roosevelt. There's an enormous capacity crowd here. I have only just a moment in which to tell you something of what's going on. The members of the Senate have just come in. The members of the Cabinet came in just a moment ago. In the gallery among the distinguished visitors, I can see Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt seated in the second row. The committee of escort is now entering the room, and the president is entering.
quite close to the members of his cabinet. Everyone is standing. The applause is tremendous as he comes in. Up on the rostrum are the chairman pro tem, Mr. John McCormick of Massachusetts. Back here on his right is Vice President Harry Truman. And the president is now taking his place uh, at a table. Uh, in front of him are the microphones of the networks as he's taking his seat. The applause, as you can hear in the background, is very great. And it is uh, an obviously great occasion. Uh, the two chairmen, uh, Harry Truman and Mr. McCormick, are standing directly in front of an American flag. And now as the applause dies away, you hear John McCormick. Senators and representatives, I have the great pleasure, the high privilege, and the distinguished honor of presenting to you the president of the United States. members of the Congress. I hope that you will pardon me for an unusual posture of sitting down during the presentation of what I want to say, but I know that you will realize that it makes it a lot easier for me in not having to carry about 10 pounds of steel round on the bottom of my legs, and also because of the fact that I have just completed a 14,000-mile trip. First of all, I want to say it's good to be home. It's been a long journey. I hope you'll also agree that it has been, so far, a fruitful one. And that is why I have come before you at the earliest hour I could after my return. I want to make a personal report to you. And at the same time, to the people of the country. I'm returning from this trip that took me so far, refreshed and inspired. I was well the entire time. I did not, uh, uh, I was not ill for a second until I arrived back in Washington. And there I heard all of the rumors which had occurred in my absence. And far away as I was, I was kept constantly informed of affairs in the United States. The modern miracles of rapid communication have made, have made this world very small. We must always bear in mind that fact when we speak or think of international relations. I come from the Crimea Conference with a firm belief that we have made a good start on the road to a world of peace. There were two main purposes in this Crimea conference. The first was to bring defeat to Germany with the greatest possible speed and the smallest possible loss of allied men. That purpose is now being carried out in great force. The German army and the German people 
are feeling the ever-increasing might of our fighting men and of the Allied armies, and every hour gives us added pride in the heroic evidence of the heroic advance of our troops in Germany on German soil toward a meeting with the gallant Red Army. The second purpose was to continue to build the foundation for an international accord that would bring order and security after the chaos of the war, that would give some assurance of lasting peace among nations of the world. That goal, too, in that goal, toward that goal, a tremendous stride was made. There's going to be held, as you know, uh, there's going to be held in San Francisco a meeting of all the United Nations of the world on the 25th of April, next month. There we all hope and confidently expect to execute a definite charter of organization upon which the peace of the world will be preserved and the forces of aggression permanently outlawed. This time we are not making the mistake of waiting until the end of the war to set up the machinery of peace. The Senate and the House will both be represented at the San Francisco Conference. The American de the delegation is, in every sense of the word, bipartisan. I think that Republicans want peace just as much as Democrats. The structure of world peace cannot be the work of one man or one party or one nation. It cannot be what some people think. A structure of complete perfection at first. But it can be a peace, and it will be a peace, based on the sound and just principles of the Atlantic Charter, on the concept of the dignity of the human being, and on the guarantees of tolerance and freedom of religious worship. Responsibility for political conditions thousands of miles away can no longer be avoided, I think, by this great nation. Certainly, I don't want to live to see another war. As I have said, the world is smaller, smaller every year. The United States now exerts a tremendous influence in the cause of peace. The United States will not always have its way 100%. We shall not always have ideals, uh, answers, solutions to complicated international problems, even though we're determined continuously to strive toward that idea. I think the Crimea Conference was a successful effort by the three leading nations to find a common ground of peace. We proposed a universal organization in which all peace-loving nations will finally have a chance to join. And I am confident that the Congress and the American people will accept the results of this conference 
as the beginnings of a permanent structure of peace upon which we can begin to build under God that better world in which our children and grandchildren, yours and mine, the children and grandchildren of the whole world must live and can live. And that, my friends, is the only message I can give you, but I feel it very deep, deeply, as I know that all of you are feeling it today and are going to feel it in the future. Radio coverage of Franklin Roosevelt's last major speech, an address to Congress on post-war plans for peace delivered on this date 75 years ago. Six weeks later, the president died of a brain hemorrhage in Warm Springs, Georgia. This is the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. If you don't know what a sutler is, you will in just a few minutes. It's a term that applies to one of the characters in tonight's Gunsmoke episode, and it also provides the show's title. From September 5th, 1953, it is indeed a story called The Sutler, and it comes from CBS, AFRTS, and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. That you, say? Over here, Jim. That's so loud. Major's got guards walking all the way, way around the fort these nights. Oh, what do you care? You ain't a soldier. You ain't done nothing. Look, Si, I don't want nobody at all to get suspicious of me. Not for a week, anyway. What do you mean, not for a week? That's what I want to tell you. I'm going to be hauling rifles into Dodge starting day after tomorrow. Rifles? That's right, about four wagon loads. Huh. That'll be a heap of rifles, Jim. Sure it will. Well, what about Jonas? Will he give you time off to do it? Jonas. <laughs> Jonas can't stop me. He's just a fool storekeeper. Yeah, I suppose so. I figure it'll take me before five days, Si. And afterwards, I'll just quit and disappear before anybody catches on. 
When they do, we'll be a long ways from here. <laughs> the army will get their rifles back, Jim. Next time they go Indian hunting. Shh. Guards about do. Come on. Over here. You can't expect the train to pull in on time every day, Chester. Well, the railroad people expect her to. Otherwise, they wouldn't write it down on the schedule board up there. Well, that's the time they hope she'll arrive. Well, then they ought to say so. With all their money, they can afford to be honest about such things. <laughs> what have you got against the railroad, Chester? Well, they're so rich, that's all, and I'm so poor. How was Saturday night, Chester? You never told me. Why, they must have been using a marked deck on me. I never had such a run of bad luck in my whole life. <laughs> Aren't you old enough to know you can't play poker with a woman sitting on your lap? A woman? We was in the O.K. stable, Mr. Dillon. We didn't even have a glass of beer. <laughs> then you didn't have much fun for your money, did you? No, sir. I didn't enjoy one minute of it. Not one minute. Hey, you fellas busy? All right, what can we do for you, mister? I got some supplies coming on the train. I need a little help loading my wagon. Well, why don't you hire someone? Well, I aim to hire you two men if you want to work. I'll give you 20 cents an hour. That's fair enough. Now, here's your chance, Chester. You won't get rich, but it's something. All right. I'll take it, mister. Uh, well, what about you? Uh, oh, well, thanks, but I got to pick up some mail. You're talking to the U.S. Marshal, mister. He don't take odd jobs. U.S. Marshal? Out of fact. But I don't see no badge. Well, I don't often wear one. Well, I'm glad to meet you, Marshal. My name is Will Jonas. I am the sutler out of Fort Dodge. I'm glad to know you, Mr. Jonas. My supplies are in the last freight car, Chester, down yonder. Well, where's your wagon at? It's on the other side of the train. Won't take more than an hour, hour and a half, maybe. Thirty cents. But I can sure use it. Well, let's get at it, Mr. Jonas. <laughs> Funny thing, Mr. Jonas, I never knew what a sutler did before. If you was in the army, you'd know, Chester. A sutler is to the army what a general storekeeper is to civilians. We sell the soldiers everything from extra food, clothes... The whiskey and playing cards. Is that what was in all them boxes? They sure were heavy. Of course they were heavy. That's why I needed help. That's why I'm buying you a beer. Here we are. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, look. Yeah. There's Mr. Dillon. Who? Mr. Dillon, the marshal. Oh, sure. Well, let's go sit with him. He seemed like a nice fellow. Yeah, well, you go ahead. I'll get the beer. All right. Here. Here's some money. Thank you, Mr. Jonas. <clears throat> Hey, join you, Marshal? Uh, sure, sit down, Mr. Hey. Jones. Yeah, I would have met you before, Marshal, but I usually drive straight to the depot and straight back to the fort. Oh, have you been at the fort long? Three, four months. I've been a sutler for ten years, ever since I got married, in fact. Is your wife at the fort? And she is. She helps keep the store there. Oh. There we are. Uh, 
beer looks mighty good to a working man. <laughs> Don't take on airs, Chester. It wasn't much over an hour. Here's to you. Yes, sir. Don't you have some sort of rank in the army, Mr. Jonas? No, I don't mean much, Marshal. I'm sort of warrant officer. I ain't really in the army, though. In fact, the major's about to fire me any day as things stand. Why is he going to fire you? Oh, my assistant, a fellow named Vale, I hired a few weeks ago. The major likes him. He wants to make him the chief sutler. Uh-huh. See, this Vale is willing to do extra work for the army, so the major's always calling on him for this and for that and... It's the work the soldiers ought to do, and I just won't do it myself. Not without extra pay, I won't. Uh, what sort of work, Mr. Jonathan? Oh, all kinds of things. Hauling stuff, mostly. Bale's got a wagon of his own. He's no good. I don't like him, nor do I trust him. Oh, why don't you fire Vale, then? Too late now, Marshal. It looked like sour grapes. And the marshal, just the major, rather, he'd just hire him back as soon as she got rid of me anyway. That major sounds like a real hard nose to me. Well, I suppose. But he don't even know Vale's not the man's real name. A lot of men don't use their real names, Mr. Jonas. Well, what is his real name? Linza. Jim Linza. Mm. Saw it once on a letter he got here in Dodge. Jim Linza? Yes, sir, that's it. <clears throat> but I can't sit here telling you my troubles all day. Been a pleasure, gentlemen. And so on. Goodbye, Mr. Goodbye. Oh, he's a good man, Mr. Dillon. I like him. Yeah, he is. But it's this Jim Linza I'm curious about. You know him? No, but I know enough about him to ride out and have a talk with the major. We'll go in the morning, Chester. While you're talking to the Major, I think I'll go see Mr. Jonas. Okay, Chester. I'll meet you there afterwards. Marshal Dillon? Yeah, I'll see you after Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Well, good morning, Marshal. Have a chair. Oh, thank you, Major. No uh, trouble, I hope. Well, that depends. What do you mean? Major, you've got a man out here called Vale, the sutler's assistant. Vale, oh yes, very willing fellow, hard worker. What about him? He's got another name, Jim Linza. So? If he's the Linza I've heard about, he's not a very good man to have it around an army post. A state your case, Marshal. Well, there is a Jim Linza who's a renegade. He's spied for and fought with the Indians, sold him supplies, all of that. You think this is the man, Marshal? Well, he has the same name. And you'd condemn a man for that? No, but I'd sure keep an eye on him and find out what he's up to. I see. I think Vale's all right, Marshal. I don't think he's a renegade. Yeah, but, Major, if he is, he could sure cause a lot of trouble. One man against a regiment of cavalry? <laughs> well, I didn't say he might take on your troops single-handed. Oh, of course not. Marshal... Who told you Vale's real name is Linza? A uh, man whose word I think I can believe. Will Jonas, wasn't it? Oh, you don't have to answer. I've been watching Jonas. He's only interested in his store. I know what he's trying to do. Jonas seems like a good man to me. Perhaps, but uh, you're not in command of Fort Dodge. 
No, no, I'm not. Command has its problems, Marshal. I wouldn't expect a civilian to understand them. All right. But what about Linza? Well, thank you for trying to help, Marshal. I'll handle the matter. By firing Jonas and making Linza your sutler, is that right? I've been thinking about it, but I'll still call him Vale. <clears throat> All right, Major. I warned you. Good day. Good day, Marshal. We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, Sunday night you are cordially invited to escape via CBS Radio. Yes, every weekend for a drama that will take you right out of this world, listen for Escape at the Star's Address. Hear Escape tomorrow evening on the network that brings you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, private detective. Now the second act of Gunsmoke. Marshal, you're just in time. Hello, Mr. Jonas. In time for what? Chow, Mrs. Jonas is expecting you. Chester here already accepted. Because they insisted, Mr. Dillon, that's why. <laughs> well, if uh, it isn't putting you out... Oh, but... glad to have you. We live right in the back of the store here. Lil, come on out and meet the Marshal. Well, here she is. Lil, this is Marshal Dillon. How do you do, ma'am? How do you do, Marshal? It's good of you to fix dinner for us. No trouble, Marshal. If you don't mind dried vegetables, that's about all the army ever eats. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fine, ma'am. Well, some of the boys brought some fish last night, though, and I... Well, I'm sort of fixing it all together. Fish stew. Oh, I've made that myself. Well, then I hope you'll like mine, Chester. Oh, I will, ma'am, especially since I'm half-starved. Oh, I mean... Well, I'm sure it's going to be just fine. Well, I like cooking for hungry men. It'll be ready in a few minutes. You can wash up out there. Oh, well, thank you, ma'am. There's soap out there and a towel. If nobody's run off with it, Jim. Oh, now, who'd do that, Lil? I don't know. But the boys seem to figure it's a good place to find a clean towel. Oh, they always return it. Dirty, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Bill. I'll be taking my wagon in to Dodge this afternoon, Jonas. Again? Well, this will be the fourth day. Major wants me to. Sure. Who are these men? This is Marshal Dillon. That's Chester, uh... Proudfoot. Lawman, huh? Ain't you supposed to be in Dodge? I'm not a town marshal, Vale. I'm a U.S. marshal. Yeah, I heard of you. Your trouble out here? We came out to have dinner with the Jonases. I didn't know you knew them. You didn't? Uh, what time you leaving, Vale? I don't know. Whenever the Major says. Major ought to be paying your wages. Yeah, he should, shouldn't he? I'll see you later. So long, Marshal. Goodbye. See what I mean, Marshal? Yeah. Well, you all go wash up and we'll sit right down. 
Hurry up, though. That sure was a good dinner, wasn't it, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm afraid we stayed too long, though. It must be nearly three o'clock. Well, it's only five miles to Dodge. We can get there way before dark. Hey, look yonder. That wagon up ahead. Something's wrong with it. Yeah. Looks like he lost a wheel. Ah, oh, poor fellow. Maybe we can help him. I uh, sure. Mr. Dillon? It's that fellow Vale. Yeah. Come on. Hello, Vale. Well, it's the marshal again. You want some help with the wheel? Can't put it back on by myself. There's a pole in the ditch over there. We can use it for a lever. I'll get it. Yeah. Chester. Hmm? Look here. In the wagon box, sir. What? My goodness. He's got a load of rifles. Yeah. Put the canvas back. Here he comes. You think he stole them? I don't know. That pool's no good. It's rotten. What do we do now? Well, we could ride back to Fort Dodge and send some help out to you. Oh, no. No, I don't want that. Oh? Why not, Vale? I just don't, that's all. But it'll take at least four men to lift this wagon. Unless you want to unload it first. No, and I ain't going to unload it. Wait. Here come some soldiers. That's a major. Yeah, so it is. What's the trouble here, Vale? We'll roll off, Major. Have to lift the wagon up to get it on again. Corporal Harris. Uh, All right, now, if you men will just get under it now. Uh, get it up again now. Here we go. Oh, uh, Marshal, uh, step over here, will you? Uh, sure. I, uh, I hear you had dinner with Will Jonas and his wife. Yeah, that's right. But before you say anything, Major, do you know what Vale's carrying in that wagon? Do you? Rifles. He must have 20 or so. 25. Oh. All right. This load makes an even hundred Vale's carted into Dodge the last few days. We're overstocked. So we're shipping them back to Fort Scott. Does that explain everything, Marshal? Yeah, sure. If they all get there. <laughs> You're over-suspicious, Marshal. Perhaps it's the nature of your job. Perhaps. Bale's all right. His helping out with this sort of work means my soldiers have more time for their military duties. His name's Lenza, Major. And I've told you what he is. And you had dinner with Jonas. <laughs> no, I'm not convinced, Marshal. Oh, there, the men seem to have the wheel on. I've got to get back to the fort. I've just been exercising my horse a little, you know. Don't have much time. 
get behind this bluff, Chester. He can't see us. He's not out of that cottonwood grove yet. Uh. We'll trail him like this all the way into Dodge. And if nothing happens on the road, then they're stealing those rifles off the train somehow. They? Well, I doubt if Lindsay's working alone, it'd be too difficult. You're pretty sure he's stealing them, aren't you, Mr. Dillon? Well, from what I've heard of Lindsay, he can make a lot of money off of some good rifles. He'll probably trade them to the Indians for horses and then sell the horses. He and whoever's in on it with him. Plum makes me boil to think of that major about to fire Mr. Jonas and then letting this Lindsay get by with everything. Now, he's doing what he thinks right, Chester. He'll learn. I sure hope so, sir. And before it's too late... Where is that wagon? It should have come out of those cottonwoods a long time ago. Maybe his wheel fell off again. I hope not. Oh, oh, there he is. No. No, that's a different wagon. Well, it sure is. And it's headed this way. Look, it's left the road. Yeah. I didn't see a wagon hunter come through there, did you? No. It could have been hidden easy enough, though. There's Lindsay's wagon now, just leaving the trees. What'll we do? That first one will be over here pretty soon. Hey, let's drop back a little, Chester. They might see us. Yes, sir. All right, Chester. Now, you make a big swing around this bluff and stay out of sight as long as you can. Come onto the road behind Lenzo and follow him into Dodge. Right to the depot if he goes there. Well, what are you going to do? I'm going to wait right here for that other wagon. I'm curious about it. All right, get going. I'll see you in Dodge. Yes, sir. Now wrap your hands around those lines. Now two or three times. Fill them up. All right, now jump down. Arms high. You got that drop on me. I won't try nothing. Now take your gun. All right, you can put your hands down. What is this, a holdup? I'm a U.S. Marshal. This is no holdup. What do you want me for? Your team will stand, drop the lines, and get around to the back of the wagon. What's this all about, Marshal? I ain't done nothing. And I don't want you, and I'll apologize to you. But first, I want to see what you're carrying. I can tell you that. It's just a bunch of shovels, and I'm late home, Marshal. Well, let's see them. Check that canvas off. Go on. Okay, Marshal. So they ain't shovels? No... No, they're sure not. Well, what's wrong with a man having a few rifles? Nothing. Uh, about 15, I make it. Isn't that right? 15. Now, can I go? What's your name, mister? Cy Wills. All right, I'll find out your real name later. Get back on the wagon. I bought them rifles. Gonna trade them off around the country to cowboys and hunters and the like. Yeah. Go on, get up on the box. 
Can I go now? Sure, you can go. Right ahead of me, straight into Dodge. Now get moving, Wills. He'll have company pretty quick, Wills. Who? Now, you wouldn't want me to spoil the surprise for you, would you? There's anything I hate, it's a renegade. Mr. Dillon? Where is he, Chester? He put the rifle on the train, sir, but there wasn't any 25 of them. I guess you found the rest, huh? Yeah, his partner had him. I got him locked up. Where's Lindsay now? I followed him to the Longhorn. He's in there. Yeah. The wagon's out back, Chester. You better stack those rifles in the office here. Yes, sir. I'm going after Lindsay. Well, you shouldn't have any trouble. He's not wearing a gun. I know. I'll be back shortly. And the jump's coming up behind him that way, Marshal. What are you doing anyway? Why'd you call me that? It ain't my name. You're under arrest, Linza. My name ain't Linza. You got nothing to arrest me for? Your partner's waiting for you, Linza. I just locked him up. I got no partner. What are you talking about? Where are the rest of the rifles? What did you do with them? I don't know nothing about it. All right. I just thought it might go easier with you if you and Wills recovered all the rifles. It's up to you. Okay, Marshal. We stole a few rifles. That ain't so bad. Uh, if I tell you where they are, will you let us go? Or at least let me go? You'd cut anybody's throat, wouldn't you, Lenza? We'll find the rifles. Come on. All right, Marshal. I won't give you no trouble. Look out! He just broke his arm. Pick up the knife, Sam. Are you coming quietly now, Lenzer, or do you want me to break your neck? I'm through, Marshal. Got a dock from my arm. You're bleeding, Marshal. Do you stick you? I didn't get in. It went across my ribs. You're quite a man, Lenzer. You don't even know how to use a knife. Now get going. I heard what happened yesterday, Marshal, so I come in early this morning. Well, glad to see you, Mr. Jonas, anytime. He didn't hurt you bad, did he, Marshal? Oh, it was my fault, I... I got careless. Doc took five stitches in him, Mr. Jonas. I watched the whole thing. Me, I don't like blood. My old man was a butcher, too. Well, maybe that's the reason, Mr. Jonas. Hmm? I, I don't follow you, Marshal. Good morning, Marshal. Gentlemen. Oh. Major. Oh, Major. Oh, that's quite a stack of rifles you've got here, Marshal. <laughs> yes, isn't it? I heard the whole story, Marshal. I hope you weren't hurt. No, I'm all right. I looked up the bills of lading. They had obviously been altered. 
Out of a hundred, I figured they shipped forty rifles and stole sixty. Yeah. You still got that pony, Scout, Big A? Yes, I have. Well, Chester will ride out and charm the wagon tracks. Big A will find the rest of your rifles for you. Good idea. Oh, uh, Mr. Jonas, I'd like to uh, apologize to you, sir. Oh, no. That ain't necessary, Major. For me, it is. All right. I think I understand, Major. Thank you. Marshal, I find myself in an extremely embarrassing position, professionally, uh, with the Army, you understand. And I, uh... Well, I wanted to ask you... Major, I'd uh, like to ask something of you first. Why, yes, certainly. Uh, those two men I got locked up, I, I was wondering if you'd take them back to Fort Dodge. It's sort of a military matter anyway. Uh, you could try them out there. Well, that's... That's very decent of you, Marshal. <sighs> Well, I figure once is enough in any one day for a man to admit he was wrong. Thank you, Marshal. I'll send a guard in for the prisoners. Oh, Mr. Jonas, would you care to ride back to Fort Dodge with me? I came in alone. Oh, be happy to, Major. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Harry Bartell, Joseph Kearns, Julie Conger, and James Nusser. Harley Bear is Chester. Gunsmoke has been selected by the Armed Forces Radio Service to be heard by our troops overseas. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Mystery with a twinkle in the eye. CBS Radio's Mr. and Mrs. North. Mystery with dynamite action. CBS Radio's yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring John Lund. Catch up with the North and Johnny Dollar every Tuesday on most of these same CBS radio stations. George Walsh speaking, and remember, there's action as a policeman really finds it in 21st Precinct, Tuesdays on the CBS Radio Network. Gunsmoke, the episode called The Sutler, from the summer of 1953 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU885. And by all means, please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. According to the National Center for Health Statistics of the Centers for Disease Control, the number of suicides in the United States has gone up nearly a third since the turn of this century. Long ago, suicide was actually against the law in many states, but those days are gone. Nonetheless, any suicide has to be investigated by the police to make sure that no murder was committed and staged to look like a suicide. That's why Joe Friday is looking into a case called The Big Switch from a January 12th, 1954 broadcast from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. 
The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A young girl has been found in a cheap hotel room, apparently an attempted suicide. There's reason to suspect foul play. Your job, investigate. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Thursday, November 19th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. We just gotten a call from Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, and it was 9.46 a.m. when we got to the second floor. The treatment room. Yes? Would like to see Dr. Hall, please? Come in, Joe. Joe, Frank? Hi, uh, Doc. This the girl? Yeah. How's she doing? Well, not sure yet. Just finished the transfusion. And when are you going to know? We think she's going to live, but there's no way of telling right now how much damage has been done to the brain tissue. Mm-hmm. Bad bruise on her face. Must have received a bad blow. Might have gotten when she fell. Mm-hmm. Let's go outside. I can use the smoke. Okay. Well, if there's any change, I'll be out in the hall. All right, Doctor. You got a cigarette? I'm fresh, aren't you? Yeah, here you are. Frank? Yeah, thanks. Here's a match. I didn't know you gave transfusions in cases like this, Doc. Don't have to very often. You see, a thing like this, the carbon monoxide in the gas joins with the hemoglobin in the red cells. Won't let go. Blood takes the monoxide through the system and suffocates the brain tissue. We've given her some coramine. Helps speed up the heart action. The way it looks, she's got a good chance of living. But we won't know how bad it really is until later. It's a rough one, isn't it? You find out who she is? Well, according to the stuff we found in her wallet, her name's Mona Fenton. Another thing that doesn't make much sense, Doc... She registered into the hotel as Mrs. John Norris. Near as we can find out, she wasn't married. How'd you come up with that? Well, when the office got word about it, we tried to get in touch with her husband. We called the phone number on the ID that we found in her wallet. Talked with her mother. She says the girl's single. Well, how about the guy she was with? You been able to talk to him? No. Nope. Haven't found out who he is. Name doesn't check out, huh? Not that we can find. How about the mother? she give you anything? Well, we just talked to her for a minute. We're going over there when we leave here. Maybe she can come up with some answers. I sure hope so. A couple of more questions you can ask her. Yeah? What's that? Find out if the girl's been under a doctor's care. What do you mean? Checked her over when she came in. Found marks. On her arms? Yeah. I think she's an addict. At 8.30 a.m. that morning, a guest in a small hotel on Grand Avenue had thought that he detected the odor of gas in the halls of the building. He notified the desk clerk, and together they conducted a search of the premises. Finally, they ascertained that the escaping gas was coming from a room on the third floor of the hotel. When the desk clerk got no answer to his calls, he used a passkey to open the door. Sprawled across the bed was a girl who appeared to be in her early 20s. The gas heater in the room had been turned on full and the windows were closed, locked and stuffed with pieces of torn sheets to keep the fumes in the room. The quick action of the desk clerk had undoubtedly saved the girl's life. While the hotel guest called an ambulance, the clerk turned off the gas, opened the windows, and administered artificial respiration to the girl until the ambulance crew arrived. As an attempted suicide, the homicide detail had to make an investigation, and Frank and I were assigned to the case. 
After we talked to Doc Hall at Georgia Street Receiving Hospital, we drove down to the hotel where the girl had been found. Right in here. Anybody been in this room since the other officers left? No, sir. They told me to lock it until you could see it. All right, sir. Now, this is just the way you found it. Is that right? Well, yes, of course. The gas is turned off, and I opened the windows, but uh, everything else is the same. I see. Well, from what you said on the phone, she came in last night. Is that right? Yes, sir. Uh, at least that's what the registration book says. They checked in at uh, 10.15. Did you take care of them? No, I was out to dinner when they got here. Who checked them in? Jeff, Jeff Christensen. See you around? No, not right now. He'll probably be back tonight. You know where we can find him? I don't know. See, Jeff got paid last night. Got his week's wages. Last I saw him, he's on his way out on the town with some of his friends. Jeff goes out on the town. Maybe we don't see him in a couple of days. I see. But you figure he'll be back tonight, huh? Oh, yes, yes. Jeff only worked a couple of days last week, so he ain't gonna go on much of the town. Mm-hmm. Did you see the man Miss Fenton came in with? No, I didn't. They were already in the room when I got back from dinner. I uh, checked the book. I got the money from Jeff before I left. The man must have gone out sometime early this morning. I guess I was asleep. My room's just back of a desk. Fellow must have got out while I was asleep. I see. Did you get any calls from the room at all? Not a one. Like I told those uniformed officers we here, I didn't see them at all. Not a peep of them. Matter of fact, I was thinking how nice and quiet they were. But, but the way the room looks, they sure must have had some sort of argument. Yes, sir. Huh. Would you know if they brought any baggage with them? Matter of fact, I know they didn't. Sure looks like they did some heavy drinking, don't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Glasses, that bottle's almost empty. Yeah. I'd rather you wouldn't touch the bottle. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, I won't. Say, uh, you talked to the girls' people yet? No, sir, we haven't. But you're planning to see them, aren't you? Yes, sir. Hey, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. You know when you see a people? Yes, sir, what's that? Well, I, I don't much mind the dirty glasses and having to straighten the room up. That's all part of the hotel business. But I wish you'd say something about the torn sheets. Tell the people about them. I don't want to cause no trouble, but maybe if they know how about the sheets were all torn up, they'd want to make good on them. You will mention it, won't you? Hmm? Yes, sir. I'll call the office, Joe. Have them send out a crew, see what prints we can lift. All right, fine. Who else has a pass key to this room? Oh, you mean beside me? Yes, sir. Well, ain't nobody. Where's the key kept? It hangs on a nail next to the desk. That big nail there, it hangs right on it. Mm -hmm. When you came into the room, did you notice if there was anything around the door to keep the gas inside? Uh, I don't follow you. Well, you found pieces of torn sheets around the windows, you say. Now, was there anything like that with the door? Oh, oh, yes, I'm with you now, yeah. Now, let me think. As I remember, no, no, there wasn't nothing there, just around the windows. Mm -hmm. Was the key in the lock when you came up here? You mean inside the room? Yes, sir, that's right. No, no, the reason I know that for sure is that I looked through the keyhole. Tried to see what was in the room. No, sir, the key wasn't in. Of course, I <laughs> don't mean nothing. Sir? Well, only a couple of the rooms have keys anyway. We don't use them anymore. You mean you don't lock the doors? Sure, we lock the doors. We got them all locked all the time. This is a respectable hotel. Of course we lock the doors. But not with those keys. We got those other locks on the doors. Oh, I see. You see, yeah, see that? Sort of like Yale locks. That kind, you know. That's uh, what locks the doors, not the other keys. Yes, I see. Of course we lock the doors. Yes, sir. The locks catch when the doors close, though, is that right? Yep, locks them tight. I got in touch with Lee Jones, Joe. He sent a crew right over. Good. I checked with Doc Hall. How's the girl? Oh, she's coming along. Doc says she's doing better. 
All these fellows that you're going to have roaming around here. What's this all about? Is something wrong? We're not sure yet, sir. Oh, dear, dear. It always happens like this, don't it? What's that, sir? I try to run a respectable place. Goodness knows I do. I keep it right up to date. It's good service, and something like this happens. There was no reason for that girl to do a thing like this. Not in my hotel. Now you cops come in here. Cops going to be all over the place. Tenants aren't going to like it. They ain't going to like it at all. Just because of that girl. Why'd she have to come in here and do a thing like this? Why'd she have to do it at all, sir? a.m. We questioned the people in the hotel. None of them could remember hearing any undue noise coming from the room where the girl had tried to kill herself. Normally, the investigation would have been routine, but with the possibility of foul play, we had to check every angle and then check it again. The crew from the crime lab arrived and went over the room. Under the bed, they found an empty capsule, the type commonly used to dispense heroin. They also came up with a clean set of fingerprints on both glasses. They were photographed, and the water glasses themselves were removed to the crime lab to be booked as evidence. The registration card the couple had signed was turned over to Don Meyer in handwriting. The name was checked through our record bureau, through the phone book, and through the city directory, but when the leads were checked out, we were no further in knowing who the man was who'd taken the room with Mona Fenton. Word was left at the hotel for the handyman to contact us as soon as he returned. Word was also left that if the man who'd registered with the Fenton girl returned, we were to be called. 11.45 a.m. The men from the crime lab finished their investigation and returned to the office to compile the results. Frank and I left the hotel and drove out to the address listed on the girl's identification. It was a large white colonial home near one of the colleges. We rang the doorbell and waited. Yes? Mrs. Fenton? Yes, that's right. What is it you want? Police officers would like to talk to you. Oh, come in. Thank you. It's about Mona, isn't it? Yes, ma'am. I knew something like this would happen. I knew it all along. Beg your pardon? When she first had this crazy idea, when she first told me about it, I knew. Kids, try to tell them. Just try and they tell you that times have changed. They say that you're not keeping up with the time. They know it all. Nobody can tell them anything. Well, what idea is this, Mrs. Fenton? When she wanted to quit school and take the job in that drive-in restaurant. The most ridiculous thing I ever heard of. But nobody could talk her out of it. Lord knows I tried. I knew something like this would happen. I just knew it. Yes, ma'am. Do you know any reason why your daughter might want to take her own life? Are you a policeman, too? Yes, ma'am. I'm Frank Smith. This is my partner, Joe Friday. How do you do? How are you, ma'am? Do you know any reason why your daughter might want to kill herself? It's a little hard to say, Mr. Friday. What's that? Bonna and I had quite an argument about her leaving school. It was one of those silly things that starts and gets all out of hand, you know. We both have pride, and neither one of us was going to back down. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Mona to talk to for over a month. Does she live here, ma'am? Yes, she does, Mr. Smith. But there's an outside entrance to her room. She comes and goes as she pleases. Doesn't eat her meals here, so I hardly ever see her. Mm-hmm. Do you know if she's been under a doctor's care? Oh, I don't think so. Why do you ask that? Well, is your daughter a diabetic? No, she isn't, Mr. Friday. Why all these questions about Mona and a doctor? What are you trying to find out? Does your daughter have any special boyfriends, Mrs. Fenton? She did have. Who was that? Richard Burdick, nice boy. Mona and he were planning to get married when they got out of school. Then, along with everything else, that just blew up. Everything seemed to go all at the same time. Did your daughter have any trouble with this Burdick? No. Nothing you could call real trouble. It's just that they agreed to disagree. It was Mona's idea. Richard didn't want anything to change. She was very much in love with her. Uh-huh. Does he know about this? I don't think so, Miss Fenton. We haven't told him. 
I don't know what he's going to do when he hears about it. It's going to hit him awfully hard. He's the sensitive type. Does your daughter have any close friends that she might confide in? I suppose she does. She's talked about some of the girls where she worked. Would you give us their names, please? Oh, yes, I will. I'll write them down for you, those I can remember. All right, fine. Has your daughter been in good spirits lately? As far as I know, yes. She's always seemed happy enough when I saw her. I told you we haven't said much more than hello the last month, but she seemed happy. Uh-huh. You said that she broke up with this Burdick boy, is that right? Yes. Well, when was that? Six weeks, two months ago. You know what caused it? The job, all the other things. Mona kept making dates with him and then breaking them at the last minute. I guess Richard just got tired of being stood up. Well, did he and your daughter have any arguments that you know of? No. They just decided that it wouldn't work out for them. They just decided to stop seeing each other. Did your daughter have any other steady boyfriends? Anyone that she saw quite a bit of, maybe? Well, there was one boy. He was quite a bit older than Mona. She saw a lot of him the last couple of weeks. You know who he was? No, I never met him. I only saw him once. What if you could describe him for us? No, I'm afraid I can't. He drove by for Mona one night, going to pick her up for a date. Parked out in front and honked the horn. I see. I went to the front door to tell him to come in. Mona wasn't ready yet, but he wouldn't. Just sat out there and waited. I didn't get a good look at him. Could you describe the car for us? Not good. It was one of those foreign cars, a convertible. I think it might have been a Jaguar. I'm not sure about that, though. But you're sure it wasn't an American automobile? Yes, I'm sure about that. All right. How about the color of the car? Can you tell us that? It was awfully dark out there. I'm not sure. I'd rather not say, officer, if I can't be sure. You understand that. I wouldn't want to tell you something and then have it turn out to be wrong. You can understand that, can't you? Yes, ma'am, of course. Did you see Mona this morning? Yes, we did. Is she all right? They think so, yes. Aren't you sure? Well, when we talked to the doctor, they were doing everything they could. They seemed to think that she was going to be all right. Thank God. It's so hard, Mr. Friday, to know that your child is sick, that she tried to kill herself, to want to go to her and not be able to. It's so hard. (laughs) Try to take it easy if you can, Miss Fenton. If you'll just give us the names of the girls that she might know, we'll be on our way. Yes, I'll write them for you. Thank you. Excuse me? Shirley? Hello? Yes, it is. What? Yes, they're here. Just a moment. It's for you. I'll get it, Joe. I'll get those names for you, Mr. Friday. All right, fine. Did your daughter ever refer to this man in the foreign car by name? No, I don't think she did. All I know is that whenever she went out with him, it was the big date of the bunch. How often did she see him? Maybe a couple of times a week. Might have been more. I had no way of knowing what she was doing. She kept pretty much to herself when she met him. But I could tell he was the big thing in her life. He was it. Joe? Yeah. Stay a minute. Yes, excuse me, Miss Fenton. I'll finish this list. Thank you. Call was from Jack Smyers at the office. Yeah. Just removed her to the general hospital. Yeah. She had a relapse. They don't think she's going to live. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. obtained the name of the drive-in restaurant where the Fenton girl was employed. We also got the names of the girls that she worked with and the address of her boyfriend, Richard Burdick. Mrs. Fenton also gave us a list of names of persons who might be able to aid us in the investigation. Under further questioning, the mother was still unable to furnish us with a motive for her daughter's attempt to take her own life. 
the apparent lack of a motive or any type of a suicide note coupled with the bruise on the girl's chin made the likelihood of foul play more than possible. 12.57 p.m. We left the Fenton home and drove over to the drive-in. We stopped on the way and put in a call to the office. There still hadn't been any report of the handyman at the hotel, the only person who could give us a description of the man who registered at the place with the Fenton girl. When we got to the drive-in, we asked about a Peggy Griegson, one of the girls on the list. After a few minutes, the girl came over to our car. You want to see me? You Peggy Griegson? Yeah, why? We'd like to ask you some questions about Mona Fenton. Who are you guys? Police officers. We'd just like to talk to you. I got to get it okayed with the manager. I'm on duty now, lunchtime. Pretty busy. I got to get it okayed. I'll take care of it. All right, fine. I'll check with the manager, Joe. Right. Hope this isn't going to take long. I got a couple of customers waiting for orders. My partner will take care of it. Why ain't the manager knowing that worries me? It's the tips they're going to leave. Make what I do, and the tips are important. Yes, ma'am. What's all this about Mona, anyway? What are the cops after her for? Well, she tried to kill herself this morning. Mona? Yes. Why? Why'd you do a thing like that? Well, we thought maybe you could help us there. Why me? I haven't got anything to do with it. Well, we understand you're pretty friendly with her. Oh, sure. I was a friend of Mona's, but I don't know anything about no suicide. I don't know anything about it, and I don't want to. Do you know any reason she might try to take her own life? Not a reason in the world. Not Mona. Do you know if she was under a doctor's care for any reason? No. I mean, I don't know. Didn't say anything about it. Never said a word. Why, she... Well, that's what we're trying to find out. Can you think of any enemies she had? Anybody who might have wanted to hurt her? How far is this going to go? Well, how do you mean, miss? I mean, who's going to hear about this? Who's going to hear the answers I'm going to give you? Well, no one. Now, what do you got for us? Well, I'll give you this for free. If anything happened to Mona, you go talk to Dick Burdick. Talk to him. He'll be able to tell you. Why do you say that? Because it's true. No other reason. He's a real bum. You ask me, I think there's something wrong with him. You know, in the head. Well, do you have any reason to say that? All the reason in the world. Poor girl, this bum all the time coming around giving her trouble. All the time telling her how he's going to kill her and anybody that comes near her. Burdick said that to Miss Fenton, did he? Half a dozen times. It wasn't more than a week ago. Mona told me she told him off, told him to get lost. She didn't want any part of him, to leave her alone. He made a big scene. Mona told me all about it. One day, this Terry drove in here. Got one of those flashy foreign cars. A Jaguar? I think so, yeah. All right, go ahead. Well, one day, he drove into the place. Mona took care of him. I guess he liked Mona. He kept coming back, always parked in her station. Anyway, this Burdick kid found out about it. Wasn't anything for him to worry about, but he made a big thing about it. Mm-hmm. Told Mona she was supposed to stop seeing Terry. Said if she didn't, he was going to cause real trouble. Did he say what he was going to do? Oh, I think he was kidding. I don't think he really meant it. He's just a kid. What would he say? I really don't think he meant it. Well, all right. Now, what did he say to her? Said if he found them together again, kill them both. We talked to the other girls in the drive-in. From them, we got the same story about the scenes that Richard Burdick had created. We got more information about the threats that he'd made against the Fenton girl and Terry Hamilton. From one of the girls, we got the address of Hamilton. 2.45 p.m. We left the drive-in and drove over to the address of the girl's boyfriend, Richard Burdick. We talked to the landlady. She told us that the Burdick boy had regular habits. He paid his rent on time. He never had any visitors. She told us that he wasn't in his room at that time, but she said that she'd let us in. In her company, we went upstairs. She unlocked the door, and Frank and I went in. I want to check the bedroom. I'll take the kitchen. Yeah. There's nothing out there. How'd you do? Oh, it looks like we're a little late. What? His clothes are gone. We checked the room further. Every indication was that Richard Burdick had left the apartment in a hurry. We talked to the landlady again. She could give us no reason for his disappearance. She gave us the name of his employer. 
We put in a call to them, but they told us that Bertie could fail to show up for work that day. 4.15 p.m. We put in a call to the hotel on Grand Avenue, but the handyman still hadn't returned and there'd been no word from him. We went back to the office and checked the name Richard Burdick through R&I, but we found no criminal record for anybody answering his description. We put out a local and an APB on him. At 4.39 p.m., we got a call from General Hospital telling us that the Fenton girl had regained consciousness and that we could talk to her. Frank and I left the office and traveled Code 2 out to the hospital. The doctor on duty told us that the girl was out of danger, but that she was very weak. He asked us not to get her excited, and he led us into her room. Miss Fenton? Yes, who are you? Police officers. Why can't you leave me alone? Go away. Just a couple of questions we'd like to ask you. I don't want to talk to anybody. Why Why didn't you leave things the way they were? Why didn't you leave me alone? Well, you had a lot of people worried, miss. No reason for it. It'd be better all the way around if things had happened the way I planned them. And you did try to kill yourself? Yes. Who was with you in that hotel room? You mean Mr. Morris? Yeah. It was Terry. It was always Terry. He was going to marry me, then he didn't. He said he would, and he didn't. That way you did what you did? Yes. You used narcotics, Miss Fenton? Hmm? You used narcotics? Yes, that was Terry's idea, too. I think that's all he wanted with me, just to get me hooked so I'd have to do what he said. I think that was the reason. How about this Richard Burdick? What about him? Do you have anything to do with you deciding to take your own life? In a lot of ways. The biggest mistake I ever made was leaving Richard. I thought it was smart, real smart. I was going to show him. Terry said he'd marry me. said he was in love with me. To get you started on narcotics? Yeah. At first, it wasn't so bad. I loved him, really, I did. Then when I had to have the fixes, he changed. Told me he couldn't give it to me anymore. That I was going to have to pay for it. I tried to tell him to tell him that I loved him. But I wanted to be with him. That's why I went to the hotel to talk it over. Try to come to an understanding, some kind of an understanding. Mm-hmm. He said that he didn't want to have anything to do with me. That he wanted no part of me anymore. Said that I was going to have to pay for the H from now on. I didn't have any way to pay for it. He said it wasn't any of his business. Is he a user? Yes. It's all so stupid, all so stupid. Ma'am? The whole thing, I had it real good all the way around. And then I went ahead and ruined everything, tore it all down. Even if I'd have killed myself, it would have been no answer. Not the right answer, anyway. I know that. I know it real well. All right. Can you tell us where you can find this Terry? You bet I can. I want to see him feel like I do. I want him to know what it's like. Will you be willing to meet with him? Make a buy of narcotics for us? You name the time, I'll be there. I'll be there if I have to crawl. All right. You better get some rest now. I guess so. I'm pretty tired. Did you see my mother? Yes, ma'am. Is she real mad at me? No, I don't think she is. Would you call her? Ask her to come and see me. Tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I want to see her. Now, she'll be glad to hear that. I hope so. I got so much to tell her, her and Richard. So much to tell them both. All right, Miss Fenton. We'll get in touch with her. And you tell me when you want me to call Terry. You tell me. All right, we will. Terrible thing, isn't it? What's that? Terry. 
He's been around a long time. Must be other girls in the same fix all because of him. Girls who have a bad habit and have to do what he says. Girls like me, terrible. Nobody knows how many. Yes, ma'am. Where's it going to end? When you meet him. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 10th, trial was held in Department 98, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Terry Norris Hamilton was tried and convicted of violation of the State Narcotics Act, a felony, one count. He received sentence as prescribed by law. Violation of the State Narcotics Act, a felony, is punishable by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of from one to five years. Mona Irene Fenton pled guilty to the same charge and was placed on probation for a period of three years with the provision that she be placed under the care of a competent psychiatrist. just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Frazier. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Vic Rodman, Virginia Gregg, Gene Tatum. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Hear John Cameron Swayze and the news next on the NBC radio network. Dragnet, the big switch, an episode from the very first fortnight of 1954 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. As part of the kickoff of our Observance of Women's History Month, we're going to hear from a female detective now. Well, definitely a female, and sort of a detective. There were quite a few old-time radio producers who thought that murder and dumb jokes made for good entertainment. The results were uneven at best, but some shows managed to pull it off. One was called Meet Miss Sherlock. It was a West Coast network show that moved with a real energy that, even nowadays, makes you kind of accept some of the sillier moments. Here's an example. It's called The Case of Wilma and the Widow, and it comes from September 12th, 1946, the CBS Pacific Network, and the series, Meet Miss Sherlock. Oh, uh, Jane. Yes, Peter? Now? Now what, Peter? Will you marry me now, tonight? Oh, Peter, I'm so sorry. I can't tonight. Tonight I have to solve the case of Wilmer and the widow. Well, it's about 
about time, about time to meet Miss Sherlock. As smart a little gal as ever stumbled across a real live clue. No, 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 please, please don't, no! Peter, darling, let's have lunch together today. Well, certainly, Jane. Where? I'd like to go to Pierre's. There's so many Frenchmen there. Frenchmen, Jane? I didn't know you preferred Frenchmen. Oh, no, Peter, I don't, but Beth Ellis does. Beth Ellis? Is that little screwball coming, too? Well, certainly, Peter. She's my friend, and besides, she speaks very good French, she says. Okay, Jane. Pierre's at noon. Pierre's at noon, and Peter... Yes, Jane? Will you wear a beret? Me? Wear a beret? What on earth for, Well, Peter, Beth's never been to a French restaurant, and I'd like to show her a real good time. Sort of a, a French atmosphere all the way. You know what I mean, Peter. What, Jane? I... Oh, you are sweet, Peter. Very sweet. See you at noon. Does uh, monsieur wear the beret often? No, monsieur does not wear the beret often. Monsieur would like a table where no one can see him. I understand, monsieur, if you will follow me. Mademoiselle Sherlock is going to join you? Yes. Here, I think you will find it comfortable. Perhaps uh, an aperitif before lunch? A tall, cold, impetuous drink of something, Pierre. Double bourbon and soda. It should be cold and impetuous enough. Right away. Your uh, ring? And telephone, monsieur. Telephone? I didn't order any telephone. A young lady is calling. Your Mademoiselle Sherlock, eh? Hey, yourself. And bring me another double. Oui, monsieur. Un moment. Hello? Shh, Peter, this is Jane. I'm terribly sorry, darling, but you'll just have to wait a little while for me. Well, what's keeping you? Oh, I'm tied up for the moment, Peter. You see, I'm shopping for blossoms on Broadway, only... Only I'm not really. Hmm. That makes sense. Go on. Well, you see, I'm really shopping for Wilmer. He came in yesterday. He wants to buy an engagement ring. Wilmer? Yes, Wilmer. Of course. It's Oh, Wilmer's widow. Uh-huh. You see, I'm doing it for you, Peter. For me? Oh, why, Jane? Why, you're a client, silly, don't you see? Wilmer's widow. No, I don't see, and who the heck is Wilmer? Well, Wilmer's your client, and that's why I'm late. Look, Jane, I don't know any Wilmers. And if I did, I'd kill him for having a name like that. How could you know him, Peter? Wilmer's widow is really going to be your client. And you just wait at Pierre's. I'll be there right away, and then you can meet Wilmer, and I'll explain them. Oh, Peter. I think I'm still here. Did you wear it? Hmm? Did you wear the beret? Yes. Oh, you're so sweet, Peter. I'll be there soon. Goodbye. Oh, nuts. Monsieur, I believe this is my table. Hmm? Oh. Oh. I believe this is my table. Oh, <laughs> well, no, I don't think so. I, uh, Pierre reserved it for me and my friends. Your friend? Yes, I am going to meet my fiancée and her friend here soon. I was just talking to her on the phone. And your fiancée will be late. Yes, how did you know? Mm. It is always the way with lovers. <laughs> I too am waiting for a friend. Oh, <laughs> uh, 
Uh, won't, won't you sit down? We can wait together. Oh, thank you, Miss Hill. <laughs> you, you forgive me, but do you wear the beret always? Oh, that. <laughs> uh, no, no, not always. You see, Jane asked me to wear it today to make this girlfriend of hers feel at home. Oh? Uh, kind of a give her a little atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Monsieur, you haven't yet told me your name. Oh, oh well, well, my name's Peter Blossom. I'm an attorney. I, uh, uh, uh what's yours? I am Yvonne. Yvonne? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a pretty name. A, hmm. Very pretty name. Thank you. <laughs> oh, life in your country is very disconcerting at times. I am not yet used to it. <laughs> oh, you'll get used to it, I'm certain. Oh, but you, monsieur, do not seem accustomed to it. You were rather upset when I intruded. Oh, I was talking to Jane on the telephone. Oh. She gets a little confusing at times. <laughs> She's with someone named Wilmer now. She says he's my client. And I don't know what to think. Wilmer? Yes, I don't know. Oh, oh, there she is now. Oh, Jane! Jane! Stay right here. I think you'll like Jane. I'll go meet her. Peter, you will be here. Right here, Jane. Wait a minute, Peter. Wilmer's out in front of Jane McCann. Come on, Jane. Wilmer can find the table himself. Peter, I hate Come on, Jane. There's someone over at my table I'd like to have you meet. Might help you to be on time the next time we have a date for lunch. Peter, you did. Did what? The beret. I think you look so cute, but that Alice isn't coming. She doesn't know what she's missing. We won't talk about that. Oh, here we are. Jane, I'd like to have you meet Yvonne. You, you mean the potted palm? Or is it you that's potted? Hmm? I don't see anyone but a potted palm. Peter, have you been... It's funny. She was here a minute ago. She was sitting right... Here comes Wilmer. Wilmer. Oh, Peter, don't be cross. I brought you a nice new client. Wilmer's widow is wanted for murder. Wilmer doesn't look quite dead enough to... Murder? Who? How? Well, it's Wilmer's friend, really. She's wanted for murdering her husband. That's Wilmer's widow. Now, Jane, listen to me. I'm a civil lawyer, not a criminal, and I... Well, Peter, I never said you were a criminal, but you certainly must be civil to Wilmer. Oh, Jane. You, Wilmer, over here. Wilmer, right here. Well, it's this way, Peter. I met Wilmer this morning right after I telephoned you. Uh, uh, Perhaps I'd better explain, Miss Sherlock. I I don't think Mr. Blossom quite understands what our connection is. Please do, Wilmer. Well, you see, Mr. Blossom, I was... uh, Pardon me, but do you wear it all the time? No. Peter, Wilmer's only trying to tell you about his widow. Go on, Wilmer. Yes. Uh, The widow of T.P. Randolph is a special friend of mine, and I'm... I'm afraid she's wanted for murder. Murdered? Yes. Who's murdered? Mr. Randolph's murder. You see, Peter, they found Mr. Randolph in a car this morning, parked in front of a bar called the Manhole. Someone had shot him, and now they can't find Mrs. Randolph anywhere. Well, now, isn't that nice? Oh, no, it's not nice at all. They've been looking everywhere for Mrs. Randolph, and I'm frightened. Where is she? Well, uh, I don't really know. Uh, You see, uh, the police found her fingerprints all over the steering wheel of the car. Who's? Well, Miss Widow, Mrs. Randolph. You see, Peter, Mr. Randolph was a very rich man, and and Mrs. Randolph would get all his money if he were dead. Oh, yes, but she really couldn't have anything to do with it. Not for money. (laughs) Uh, Money, Wilmer, is a very good motive for murder. Then you think Wilmer's widow is guilty? Mm Mm-hmm. Very guilty. But, 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 oh, oh dear, I... She couldn't be. She's not that kind of a girl. Not Yvonne. Who? Why, Yvonne. 
Yvonne Randall. Will you take the case, Peter? Yvonne. Just a minute, Jane. Wilmer, uh, what does Yvonne look like? Oh, she's beautiful. I remember the first time I saw her in a flame-red dress that seemed to set the sparkles in her hair. French action? Why, yes. How did you know? Never mind. Wilmer, I'll take the case. <gasps> That's wonderful of you, Peter. Oh, thank you, Mr. Blossom. And when can I meet your widow, if, if, uh, Mrs. Randall? Oh, I know she'll get in touch with me pretty soon. I handled all of Mr. Randolph's money. Yvonne loves money. <laughs> I'm sure she does. Peter, do you think you can help Wilmer's widow? Maybe. But, Wilmer, I'll have to surrender her to the district attorney's office as a matter of form after I've talked to her. Oh, I, I understand perfectly. I, I'll let you know as soon as she shows up. You can trust Peter, Wilmer. Oh, I hope so. Did you say Mr. Randolph was killed in front of the uh, manhole? It's a bar or something over on the Bowery, Peter. Mm -hmm. uh, I must get back to my office now. You'll excuse me. Of course, Wilmer. Uh, yes. Uh, by the way, Miss Sherlock, uh, when you find that ring we were looking for, uh, will you have this engraved on the inside? Here. Oh, yes, Wilmer. I'll take care of it. Goodbye. So long. Uh, goodbye. <laughs> Funny little guy. Yeah, I wonder... Peter! Hmm? Come on, we've got to get busy. Well, I can't do anything until Wilmer finds Mrs. Randolph, Jane. Oh, yes, we can. We can find a murderer. The manhole. Isn't that a nice name, Peter? Oh, sometimes, Jane. I wonder why I let nice. you get... Awfully dark for the afternoon in here, Peter. Yes, isn't it? Might as well go to the bar. Bartenders usually know everything. A charming afternoon, folks. What'll it be? Well, um, two bourbons, Peter? No, oh, that'll be fine. A very exemplary choice. I'll fetch him forthwith. Forthwith? Forthwith. Oh. An advice I love. <laughs> Peter, we'll have to ask him what happened this morning. Mm. I took the liberty of bringing you an afterthought of ginger ale. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Be anything else? Uh, no. Uh, pardon me, sir. Is the uh, barrette a standard part of your costume? Hmm? Oh. The barrette. Oh, the barrette. No, no, I wore it for a friend. I see. Greater love hath no man. Now, see, here uh, you Peter, are. Uh, Peter's sensitive about the barrette. Understandable. We, uh... They're wondering if you were here this morning when they found the body of Mr. Randolph in front. I not only was here, I found it. I know nothing of the affair, and it's not my fault someone was crass enough to park a corpse in front of my shop. And furthermore, my business is not talking, but selling booze. Another brother? Oh. Uh, ever hear of a girl named Yvonne? I repeat, I know nothing. Perhaps I better attend to my wake in a bag. Call me if you need. We didn't get very much information from him, did we, Peter? Not much. He just refused to talk. I'll bet he knows something. I know something. Oh. Well, who are you? That is unimportant. You know Yvonne? Yvonne? I don't know her. Do you know Yvonne? What is what this? What I do know is this. You want to keep your health, you forget about Yvonne. <laughs> Jane Sherlock, what are you doing well, here? Well, Peter and I just dropped in for, for a drink, didn't we, Peter? Yes, that's all. Hello, Miss Sherlock, Mr. Blossom. What's new? You solving any murders today? They haven't got any to solve. They're all solved. What do you mean, Captain Dingo? Just what I said. You mean you've already solved the Randolph killing? The one that happened this morning? All taken care of, Kitty. It's not a thing for you to do. But that can't be, Dingy. I... Jane. Hmm? 
please don't call me Dingy. Oh, I'm sorry. Who murdered Randolph? Yvonne Randolph, his wife. She killed him, drove him here, parked the car, and left him. But are you sure? Very certain. Her fingerprints were all over the steering wheel. You know, Jane, I had a feeling you and Peter would be snooping around here. For once, you're too late to butt in. It's all sewed up. Yep, all sewed up. Not a spit showing. Even Tollison knows. Right, Chief. Well, where are you holding, Mrs. Randolph? Oh, we haven't had time to find her yet. Oh, I see. Well, Captain Dingo, Peter and I were just dropping by. You see, we wanted to get a little information. Information? What kind of information? Mm, Peter's taken a new case. He's Mrs. Randolph's lawyer. He's what? I'm her lawyer. Oh, you are, are you? Chink, chink. What's going to happen now? Well, you picked a swell case to switch to criminal law on. You'll never get her off. We got her dead to rights. The manhole's a very interesting place. Any place is interesting that has a dead body parked in front of it in the morning. No, the most frightening man spoke to Peter and me while we were in there. Oh, if you mean the bartender, Miss Sherlock, he is a little screwy, isn't he? Strange is a better word. I don't mean the bartender. There was another man. He was wearing a beret, just like Peter's. Oh, yes. Uh, I meant to ask you about that, Peter. Is it uh, comfortable? Dingle, I dislike scenes. It wasn't as cute as Peter's. This man was tall and kind of skinny with a scar on his face. Hey, Chief, that's all... Shut up, Tollison. Did you say he had a scar on his face? Yes, the poor fellow must have run into a plate glass window or something in his time. That was Andre Pettijon. Who's Andre Pettijon? Oh, just one of our prized suspects, that's all. Which way did he go? I don't know. He was in the bar a minute ago. Get in there, Tollison. Right, Chief. What's he got to do with this? Nothing. Only he was a great friend of Mrs. Randolph's and tried to swindle her husband with some phony invention. We think he was in on it. Well, what makes you think that? Mrs. Randolph was seen with him three or four times in the Markham Grill. We found that out. They used to meet there. She only married Randolph for his money. The Markham Grill? Yeah. You two might have let our prize suspect get away. We'll find Mrs. Randolph sooner or later, but Andre's clever enough to slip out of town. Why didn't but you... Singing, we didn't know he was important. He was important, and don't call me Dickie. No, I'm inside, Chief. Barkeep doesn't speak very good English. Uh, Chief, what's a, uh, a fort with? Well, he's got away. Come on, Tollison, let's get back in there. I'll make this bartender talk if it's the last thing I do. Come on, Peter, we'll go Oh, uh, it. no, Jane. Let Dingle take care of that. But, Peter, they're going to try to find out about Andre Pettijean. So are we, Jane. Well, then come on, Peter. Let's go in the manhole. No. We're going over to Markham's. I've got to protect my client. Peter, you're going about this case the wrong way. Why did we go to all the trouble of questioning the head waiter at the Markham Grill? We kept our health, didn't we? Well, yes. And but... we don't know where Andre would be. Homer's back. Yeah, we'll soon know. I wonder if he found Mrs. Randolph yet. Mrs. Randolph is the kind of woman you don't just find, Jane. Huh? What do you mean, Peter? Blondes like Mrs. Randolph are a rare vintage. Oh. Hmm. Uh, Wilmer Waldo, public accountant and business affairs. And what that means, Peter? A high-priced business agent. People like Randolph often use them to handle their money. Oh? And uh, this is probably what he did for them. And Jane, if you need someone to help you handle your money, you have to have a lot of it. I suppose so, but... And Wilmer's the type. Yes, isn't he? Type for what, Peter? Do you think maybe Wilmer's hiding Yvonne under his desk? Wilmer's probably hiding plenty. Doesn't look like anyone's here, Peter. I wonder what could have happened to Wilmer. He was such a nice little man. He wouldn't... Oh, oh, it's you two. Yes, Peter and I want to see you, Wilmer. Hi, Wilmer. What took you so long? Uh, I came as fast as I could. I was in the file. Right in the drawer? Jane. Uh, Come in, come in. Oh, you have a nice office, Wilmer. A little bit unlike you. Oh, 
Do you think so? Oh, red plush leather chairs and chromium lace. Uh, I like nice things. Of course you do, Wilmer. Uh, where's Yvonne? I don't know, Mr. Blossom. I, I haven't seen her yet. Wilmer, Peter and I haven't got uh, Let quite... me handle this. Thing. Now, Peter, you... Look, Wilmer, I don't think you've been telling me all you know. Oh, Peter, that isn't nice. You shouldn't talk to Wilmer that way. And why? Well, can't you see you've upset him? And besides, you're bigger than he is, Peter. Yeah, but, 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 but I, I, I have told you all I know. Uh, Yvonne Randolph is wanted for her husband's murder. Look, Wilmer. Do you know André Petitjean? André Petitjean. André... No, no, I don't think so. He's a Frenchman from France. Oh. Yes. He talked to Peter and me today. He seemed to know Mrs. Randolph very well. He did. I mean, he did. Very well. In fact, so well that when Jane and I went to the manhole to try and get a little information from the bartender, he walked over and told us to forget all about Yvonne. Oh, dear, oh, dear. That's terrible. It's terrible. I wonder what connection he has with all this. We're wondering the same thing, Wilmer. Are you sure you don't know André Petitjean? No. Uh, no, I don't think I do. You said that once before. Peter, this has all been very trying. It's going I... to be more trying any minute now. Uh, what do you mean? Wilmer, Peter and I went over to the Markham Grill before we came here. Uh, the Markham? On West 45th Street? The same. Oh, I've been there. They, they serve awfully nice steaks. Yes, Wilmer. Uh, you were eating dinner... Rather early, weren't you? We weren't eating dinner. Well, my goodness. We were talking to the head waiter, as a matter of fact. Uh, Alonzo, yes. Oh, he's an awfully nice fellow. I know his mother, too. She's very nice. Everybody's just fine. Do you know what Alonzo told us, Wilmer? Uh, no. What? That he saw you and Andre Petitjean having dinner together there the night before Mr. Randolph was murdered. Uh... Well, so I did. So you did. Didn't you just tell us you never heard of Andre Petitjean? Well, I hadn't really. Oh, dear, you, you're confusing me again. Peter, be quiet. Oh, nuts. Petitjean is wanted by the police. Wilmer isn't wanted. Mrs. Randolph is wanted. Wilmer remembers. He doesn't remember. No one knows anything. Who am I? Well, you're Peter Blossom, and I'm going to marry you. Oh, isn't that sweet? Oh. <laughs> Wilmer. How did you get to know Andre? Uh, I met him at Mr. Randolph's laboratory on 39th Street. He was a very nice chap. <laughs> I knew he would be. Yes. Uh, he was a friend of Mr. Randolph's, come to think of he it. He was a friend of Mr. Randolph's? Uh-huh. Uh, he had an invention he was trying to interest Mr. Randolph in. It was something for uh, reclaiming wool. Did Randolph buy it? Oh, dear, no. I advised against it. I see. Did Randolph usually go by what you said, Wilmer? Always. Your memory isn't any good, Wilmer, but I want to know how Andre knew Mr. Randolph. Uh, well, Andre knew Mrs. Randolph in Europe uh, before she met Mr. Randolph in Paris, I believe. And Mr. Randolph married her and they came to the United States and then Andre showed up with his invention. And I told Mr. Randolph not to buy it. Oh. I haven't seen Andre since. He was pretty angry. Naturally. Well, you see, uh, he and Mrs. Randolph were good uh, friends once. And then Andre came here and looked them up. And tried to sell Mr. Randolph an invention. Uh, yes. Uh, Mr. Randolph didn't like him. He thought that, um, that... What do you uh, think, Wilmer? That maybe Mrs. Randolph and Andre were beginning to like each other again. Mrs. Randolph was like that. Mm -hmm. No wonder the police are looking for Andre. They think he and Mrs. Oh, Randolph... Oh, they'll never find him. Uh, Miss Sherlock, did you find the ring yet? I want it to be just right. The ring? Oh, the ring you hired me to buy for you yesterday. Yes. And don't forget the inscription. No, no, I won't. 
You gave it to me earlier. Getting married, Wilma? Yes, as soon as I can. Who to? <gasps> what is it, Jane? Oh, I feel faint, Peter. I feel faint. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Get me. out of the way, Wilmer. I'll take her out in the air. a very good actress. Why, Peter, we found out everything we wanted to know. There wasn't any more. Oh, Jane, I was just beginning to get some information. We found out the important thing. We did? I mean, did we? What? Where Yvonne is hiding. Huh? Oh, wait a minute, Jane. How did... Right here, driver. Wait for us, driver. Hey, what is this? Where are Come we? Come on, Peter. Now, look, Jane, I don't mind wearing a beret for you. I don't even mind meeting Wilmer and getting a client I don't want. But why the alleyway? Don't what you, you see, Peter? This is that laboratory of Mr. Randolph. That's just dandy. So what? Remember, Wilmer said he had the laboratory on 39th Street. This is it. And what has this to do with Yvonne? She's hiding here. Huh? Yvonne Randolph is hiding here. I just know it. Oh, Jane, for God's sake. Oh, the... good. The door's not locked. Jane, will you please tell me what makes you think Yvonne Randolph might be hiding here? Where else could she hide, Peter? Shh. Don't want to let anyone know we're here. Jane, Jane, where are you? Here, oh, I can't see a blasted thing. Can you find a light switch or something? No, I can't even find myself. For heaven's sake, Jane. We don't wind up in jail for housebreaking or something before oh, this day is up. Did you hear something? No, not a thing. Have you a match? Uh, yeah, yeah, just a minute. Oh, there. There's a light switch, Peter. Oh, good. I'll turn the lights on. And... <gasps> Jane. <gasps> what is it? It's Andre. Andre Dejean. Oh. And full of bullet holes. Oh. He's dead enough to pass coroner's inspection. Oh, Peter, it's so horrible. You had a good hunch, darling. But it looks like we found the wrong person. For Andre. Huh? Guess there's nothing to do but phone homicide and let them know about this. Maybe there's a telephone in the other room. Oh! Peter? Peter? Peter, what is it? Have you found Yvonne? Yes. Oh. You found Yvonne. You killed Peter. Oh, oh. No, little one. He is not dead yet. What do you mean? It is not quite obvious. A life for a life. That saying is known in every country. But Peter didn't kill anyone. What about my Andre? What about him? He is dead and you and this man killed oh, no, him. No, no, you're wrong. We found him dead. We didn't kill Andre. Really, we didn't. I loved Andre and now he is dead. Nothing no, else no, matters. Don't shoot, please. We came here to help you. We really did. Help me? Why? Peter's your lawyer. My lawyer? (laughs) What could a lawyer do for me? I'm wanted for murder. The police are looking for me even now. I never loved my husband, but I did not kill him. You and Andre tried to swindle him. Yes. Who killed him? Wilmer. Please drop your gun, Yvonne. You? Yes, it's me. Drop your gun, Yvonne. Be careful, Wilmer. You... You, you murderer, you... Wilmer, a murderer? Yes, he killed my husband. I had to, Miss Sherlock. He was in the way. Oh, Oh, Wilmer. And now I'm going to have to kill you two. Oh, and Mr. Blossom. Too bad. He was so nice. But why? I went to all the trouble of killing Mr. Randolph, and then this Andre Pettijohn came along. I might have known. Known what? I could never love anyone but Andre. I made the mistake of loving you, Yvonne, and now I'm going to you kill... You killed my Andre. But, Yvonne, I had to. You... You beast! Oh, Yvonne, <laughs> don't cry. I'm awfully sorry. 
See, I'll kill you now, and then you won't feel badly anymore. Don't do that! They want more to fix the woman! Not bad, Jane. I learned that in law school. I didn't know you were so muscular. You are wonderful, monsieur. Oh, you. Look what you did to my head. I am very sorry. I, I apologize. Oh, that's all right. It was nothing. It was... It, oh. oh, my goodness. Peter's fainted. Feel better, darling. Oh, I think so. Well, it's lucky you came, too. Wilmer was going to start shooting everyone. Well, all right, Peter. Jane, you've scooped me again. Mrs. Randolph's in the clear, and we're booking Wilmer for both murders. Chief, I don't quite know how all this happened. We were looking for Mrs. Randolph, and then... Tarleson, will you please stick to nothing but holding them once we get them? Let me handle the catching. Okay, Chief, but I... Tarleson. Right, Chief. We were pretty good, huh, Dingle? You were great. How did you get mixed up with those two, anyway? You see, Jane and I were going to have lunch together at Pierre's. It's a French restaurant. Oh, of course. Only I had to do some errands, and I was late because of Wilmer. I was buying him an engagement Because ring. of Wilmer? Mm-hmm. Jane, how did you meet Wilmer? Well, it was him I was doing the errands for. And then I hired Peter to be Mrs. Randolph's lawyer. Chief, I... Allison, please. Go on, Jane. And I phoned Beth Ellis, and she told me she couldn't make luncheon after all. Chief, tell me frankly, are you with Miss Sherlock? Always... Go on, Jane. So I telephoned Peter and I... Captain Dingle, are you sure you're with me? Jane, I've gone through this so many times. It always comes out sooner or later. Uh-huh. Uh, oh. uh, well, Peter and I called on Wilmer at his office, and Wilmer told us about the laboratory. And then I remembered what Wilmer wanted to inscribed on his engagement ring. Go on. And I told Peter I had a headache. Go on, Jane. And then we found Yvonne. Oh, that does it. Please, now, Jane, please, will you try to make some sense? Please, just this once. Yvonne thought we'd killed Andre, but we didn't. Wilmer killed him. Right after we saw Andre this morning at the manhole, and Jane, then... Jane, just a minute. How did we actually get tangled up in all this? A $64 question. Well, don't you see? See what? Yeah, Miss Sherlock, I don't think... You never did. Right, Chief. Well, Dingy, I... And don't call me Dingy! I thought I told you... The ring was going to be inscribed from W to Y. So what, Jane? Well, Wilmer wanted to marry Yvonne. He ordered an engagement ring for her yesterday before Mrs. Randolph was a widow. Oh, Jane, it's so good to sit down. <laughs> Does your head still hurt, Peter? <laughs> Not when you rub it that way, Jane. I feel kind of sorry for Wilmer. You have the oddest sense of sympathy, Jane. He killed everybody to marry Yvonne and then... And it didn't work. Peter! Yes, darling? Come on, we've got to get started. Get started? For where, Jane? Pierre's. We're meeting Beth Ellis for a midnight dinner. Oh, no, Jane, not We are, Peter. She's expecting us. And Peter... Yes, Jane? Wear your beret. Beth will love it, please. Oh, here we go again. that way all the time with Jane and Peter, especially Peter. How would you like to wear a beret? 
Well, next week, Jane doesn't make Peter wear a beret, but they do get involved with a big game hunter who says he's being hunted in the case of the pink elephant. So be with us next week at this same time when you meet Miss Sherlock. Meet Miss Sherlock, produced by Dave Vale, written by Don Thompson and E. Jack Newman, with original music composed and played by Milton Charles, is presented from Columbia Square in Hollywood. Murray Wagner speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Meet Miss Sherlock. I hesitate to think what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle might have thought of that title. An episode called The Case of Wilma and the Widow from the late summer of 1946. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The very first time I fell in love with The Whistler, it was that wonderful, spooky opening that got me, along with the tantalizing, well-written promise of a captivating story. The actual opening I heard was for an episode called A Woman's Privilege, and since we're saluting Women's History Month, I thought, okay, it's a lame excuse, but see if you don't like the opening as much as I do. If you're younger than I am, and who isn't, you may need to know that until roughly the 1960s and 70s, you had to make long-distance telephone calls through an operator, and they had to be either station-to-station, which meant you'd talk to anybody who answered the phone, or person-to-person. With William Conrad and Betty Lou Gerson from October 2nd, 1949 and the CBS Pacific Network, it's A Woman's Privilege from The Whistler. the whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. And now the whistler's strange story, A Woman's Privilege. In the drawing room of a palatial home in Beverly Hills hang a pair of priceless oil paintings, one of an Italian nobleman, the other of his wife. The surfaces are cracked, the frames old and wormy, but the colors are almost as fresh and brilliant as if they were painted yesterday. There's a strange connection between the paintings and a sordid, ugly scene in a Los Angeles police station. It's very late. And in the next room, a homicide lieutenant is grilling a suspect on the charge of murder. No, but he's coming along. Lieutenant Brady's getting to him, huh? Give the lieutenant five minutes more. The guy's ready to break now. (laughs) You know, I can't help feeling there's more to this than the guy's telling. Something that maybe even he doesn't know. Yes, it was more than a simple murder. 
more than the homicide detail or anyone else would ever uncover. It was the story of a traveling art broker named John Winters, of a casual trip to the picturesque Italian seaport of Venice, of the unbelievable, stunning moment in his hotel room when a quiet little artist named Giulio Donati put a quarter of a million dollars in the palm of his hand. Well, Signor Windows, what do you think? Well, it's pretty hard to believe. <laughs> but the seeing is believing, eh? Uh, Tell me, what do you think it would bring on the American market? Well, I don't know. It's been so long since no, anything like this. But you do this. know, Signor Windows. At this moment, your head is spinning with features. <laughs> well, after all. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> so you will agree I am giving it to you for almost nothing when I ask only just $75,000. Uh, Seventy-five thousand for an original Montaigne. No, I thank you for being very reasonable. Uh, thank you, Signor. Uh, too reasonable. Uh, uh, huh? What's wrong with it? He's uh, <laughs> still skeptical, eh? You're very hard to convince, Signor Winters. Uh, look, suppose I leave it with you for, say, 24 hours so you can examine it very closely. You're pretty sure of yourself, Donati. Well, I would not have come to you if it weren't sure that the painting would pass the inspection of the best expert. Your reputation as a specialist on Montaigne is known all over the continent. Yes, well, this is a Montaigne if I ever saw one, but 75,000. Signor, there will be many who will say it's Montaigne's best work. Well, I'd agree with them. It is. <laughs> What's so funny about that? <laughs> well, you, you flatter me. What? You, you see, I painted it myself. You what? I, I wanted to know that. It took me many months. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me I that I painted you... it myself, as you know. Oh, but the technique, the yes, style. They were difficult to master. The oils were hard to find in the aging process. Senor, it was hard work, but you see, it had its reward. Yes. Is uh. This the only one? No, I completed a pair. The other was sent three weeks ago to a broker who was highly recommended to me in Los Angeles. A C.L. Brickley. I expect to hear from him tomorrow. Does he know about this one? Well, of course. I informed him in a confidential letter. Well, I should think you'd keep it under your hat. Forgeries are serious Please. business, you know. They are not the forgeries. I claim only to paint in the manner of Montaigne. Had I intended to pawn off a forgery... Would I have been so frank? Yes, but you know what's going to happen. This Brickley will peddle that picture as an original. Senor, what you people do with my paintings is your own business. I am an artist, not a forger. But I think you will find me discreet enough. Well, now I must go. You you may examine the picture as closely as you want, Senor. Um, where can I reach you? My studio, 11 Plaza Franchette. Good, good. Before noon, eh? Yes, right. Good day, Donati. Good day. Hey, senor. Long distance, operator. I want Mr. Wilkin Potter, Chatelaine Hotel, Interlaken, Switzerland. Person to person. Wait a minute, Potter. I tell you again, it's the McCoy, an original Montaigne. He's pulling your leg. No one in his right mind will let a Montaigne go for 75000 I told you he doesn't know what he's got. The artist only produced 35 paintings in his life. They're all catalog winters. There's no such thing I as... saw it with my own eyes. Are you telling me I don't know a Montaigne when I see one? And what about this Brickley? He bought the mate to it. But, John, I just can't 
All right, all right, all right, Potter. If you don't want to advance me the money, there are plenty of others. Now, don't do that. All right, John. It's a deal. Call me when you've closed, and I'll wire the money. Well, that's better. You'll hear from me in a couple of hours. Well, John, Donati was right, wasn't he? Your mind is whirling with figures as you hang up the phone. Hurry across town toward the little shop in the Plaza Franchetti. Yes, there's over a quarter of a million dollars in that special built briefcase under your arm. Provided that the three people in the world who know the truth are discreet. That's the only gamble, isn't it, John? You and Donati and Brickley, the Los Angeles broker. With three who know, there's always a chance that one might talk. You turn a corner into the plaza, wondering if Brickley had thought of that one. The answer comes suddenly. The crowd is gathered at the front of Donati's shop. What's the matter? What's happened here? Get back, please. What is it, officer? What's happened? The proprietor of this shop, Signor Donati, was a shop. Is this you, Potter? Yes, John. Go ahead. Well, it looks like the deal's off. What happened? We were a little late. Brickley got there first, huh? Yeah, Brickley got there first. Uh, thanks for the offer, Potter, but I won't need the money now. I'm on my way back to the States. Los Angeles. few days from Venice, Italy to New York, then on to Los Angeles by plane. But it seems a great deal longer, doesn't it, John? You try to concentrate on other things, but your mind keeps going back to your suitcase in the luggage compartment, to the masterful piece of forgery sewed in its lining that will bring at least a quarter million on the American market. Yes, Donati was clever, wasn't he, John? Too clever. And to you, at least, it's clear that this Brickley, whoever he is, knew that a clean deal could never be made if the secret of the forgery were shared. And that, of course, added up to Donati's murder. You have a surprise for Brickley, haven't you, John? But you know you have to be careful. On the afternoon of your arrival in Los Angeles, you walk down the corridor of a building in the Miracle Mile District. Pause and press a buzzer. Yes? I'm looking for Mr. C.L. Brickley. Oh, uh, what did you want to see Mr. Brickley about? Well, it's a personal matter, is he? And... Well, just what is it you're selling, Mr. Uh... Uh, Winters, John Winters. I'm really not selling anything. I... <laughs> oh, I see. Well, I guess this suit does need pressing, but it's really not that bad, Miss... Uh... Brickley. Uh... Oh, his daughter? I'm C.L. Brickley. What? Himself. <sighs> well... A woman. Mm -hmm. But a woman who isn't interested in a vacuum cleaner at the moment. Perhaps some other time, Mr. Winters. All right, Miss Brickley, have it your way. A friend of mine told me you had a picture or two that might interest oh, wait, me. Wait, wait I... a minute. What kind of a picture? Oh, I'm collecting Italian Renaissance. You? 
Honest, Miss Brickley, I've got 11 other suits, and if I'd known I was calling on such a beautiful businessman... Oh, sorry, Mr. Winters. <laughs> Please come in. Shall I bring my vacuum cleaner? No charge I for the demonstration. I'm sorry. <laughs> come in. Please sit down. Thank you. Here's my card. Um, as you can see, I'm an art broker. Well, I'm a broker, too, Mr. Winters. Yes, I see. You mentioned Italian Renaissance. What did you have in mind? Uh, Venetian school in particular. Oh. And you know, of course, authentic Venetian things run a little high. How high? $300,000. <laughs> well, that's high enough. What is it? A Montaigne. Oh, now, wait a minute. I know. You... It's hard to believe. It came to light during the war. I was very lucky. You're positive it's authentic. Do you want to see it? No, that uh, won't be necessary. Here, uh, let me check my briefcase here. Well, I have the picture in my safe. I, I now, just a minute, it. just a minute. Ah, here we are. How do you like this one? Where did you get that? Same place you got yours, Miss Brickley. Same artist, same convincing technique. Who are you? Winters. The name's Winters. That's what I mean. Where did you come from? Oh, don't worry about me, lady. I'm authentic. Uh, let's stick to the Montaigne's, huh? All right, Mr. Winters. Um, just how many of these are floating around? Two. And how many know about this? Two. You and me. That is, since you uh, took care of Donati. It's a little crude. All right, so you had it done. What's the difference? That still leaves two. You'd be smart enough not to give the hired help your reasons. You've got it all figured out, haven't you? Oh, it's water over the dam. Let's talk about the pictures. You know, we're hooked with each other. You know that. I might not... Be so bad, Mr. Winters. <laughs> Better make it John. All right. John. <clears throat> you know, uh, we've got a lot to talk over, CEO. I know. But since you're not quite the kind of guy I expected to meet, why don't we uh, switch the conference to a nightclub? I'd like that. Okay, pick you up around eight. Fine. Oh, uh, and don't worry. About what? I'll wear another suit, one that's pressed. <laughs> You know, C.L., you don't dance at all like a stuffed shirt. <laughs> you like? Yes, I like. But tell me more. Oh, no, not at a business conference. Oh, that again. <laughs> oh, bring Brickley, darling. Where have you been? Hello, Mrs. Garden. One of my clients. When am I going to see you, dear? It's been an age. I may have something to show you in a few days. Oh, good. Don't forget me, will you? Don't worry. Mrs. Carlton, huh? You didn't tell me about her. She has money, darling, but not the kind we're after. Well, who does it boil down to? They're pretty hard to find, you know. People who put out half a million for a pair of paintings. I've uh, put out a couple of feelers. But... A couple of feelers? Yes. You mean you're going to help me sell mine? Well, I was thinking about it. Not much sense in being competitive, is there? No, I guess there isn't. Besides, if we both know where both paintings are, there's... Less chance of complications later, don't you think? <laughs> uh-huh. 50-50. 50-50. I beg your pardon, Miss Brickley. Yes? There's a call for you, Mr. Gross. Mr. Gross? What is... Who's Mr. Gross? He's uh, one of the clients I told you about. He said it was quite important, Miss. Yes, of course. Excuse me, John. I'll be right back. She gives your hand a little squeeze as she turns to leave the floor. Floats past the row of ringside tables and out of the room. She is beautiful, isn't she, John? Slim, graceful. The satin of her evening gown clinging to her like a glistening white sheet. And for the moment you forget everything else. The Montaigne, the half million, the wealthy clients, everything. 
Everything that is, except that you're dealing with a killer who's as sure as you are that those paintings can never be sold. As long as there are two minds in the world who know their forgeries. If only she weren't so breathtaking, so beautiful. What's on your mind, John? What? Oh, I'm... Get out. All right. Miss me? Naturally. Uh, what about Mr. Gross? Oh, uh, that was nothing. You said he was a client. What's on his mind? Well, he's, uh, interested in, in his aunt's art, you know. Oh, good. He knows about the Montanias, huh? More or less. What do you mean, more or less? Well, I told him I had something that would interest him. Make an appointment? Yes. As I told him I'd get in touch with him in a day or two. Good. Now, let's forget about business for now, shall we? The music's so wonderful. I do love to dance with you, John. You wish Lorraine didn't affect you this way. That you could approach the whole thing with a clear head. But it's something you've never known before, really. The music, the vibrant, thrilling feeling that sweeps over you as you dance with her. Her warm, low voice in your ear. But no matter how much you tell yourself that business is business, the feeling's still there the next morning when you arrive at her apartment. You pause for a moment before you buzz. Decide once again that nothing must stand in the way of the picture deal and the half million dollars. Well, hello, partner. Partner? Any objections? <laughs> Not if I've really made the grade. You have, definitely. Come in. Thank you. I uh, wish I could be sure I'd made that grade. Well, I don't know what more I can do to make you sure. I'm trying to arrange for the sale of both Montanias through my own contacts. I didn't have to. No, but the sale of two Montanias will bring twice as much money as the sale of one. Want it? Well, half of this goes to you. I told you this is a 50-50 deal all the way. Yeah. You made a deal with Donati, too. He's not around anymore. Still accusing me of that, huh? I can add up a column of figures as well as the other guy. All right, John, have it your way. Oh, I guess you were smart, though. It was a sure bet with one picture. With two, it's a gamble. More than that... Let's not talk about that anymore. <laughs> I don't want to be cruel. Just practical. Oh, uh, cigarette? Thanks. Uh -huh. There you are. Well, what's next on the program, beautiful? Mr. Gross? I... I don't know, John. What do you mean you don't know? You're not getting cold feet, are you? You said he was interested. I know, but... Well, that's good enough for me. If you don't want to see him, I will. John... And we've got to trust each other now. You know that. Just make an appointment with a guy for me. I want to see him. John, I... I don't know why I'm saying this. I've never said it before, but... What is it? We... We'd be awfully good friends. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I, I'm very flattered. I've uh, got to be careful, though, you know. Playing with dynamite. John. I'm talking about Donati. You did it once. You could do it I'm again. I'm talking about us and what good friends we could be. Uh, we'll discuss that at length after we take care of the pictures. Pictures? What do you mean? We're going to wrap them up, darling. We're going down to Union Station. Yes, sir? I want to check this package. John, please. what are Just you? a minute, Lorraine. Here you are, clerk. Ten dollars. Ten? What do I do? Uh, just give me the claim check. Okay. There you are. Now watch. I tear it in half. See? 
There you are, Lorraine. That's yours. What are you doing? Ah, what's this all about? Uh, give me a piece of paper and a pencil there, will you? I want to put a note on the package. Thank you. Well. To uh, deliver it only when both halves of the claim check are presented. Oh. There we are. You get it? Well, I don't know. I... You want that ten bucks? Oh, sure, sure. All right, here's the note. Paste it on the package. Right. Ah, good. Thank you. Come on, Lorraine. No, I think this is all pretty silly. Maybe it is, dear, but I do a lot of silly things for a quarter of a million bucks. But uh, don't get me wrong, Angel. I trust you like my own mother. I just trust you a lot more after you fix up that appointment for me with your friend, Mr. Gross. How soon can you make it? Well, I, I don't know, John. I'm not sure. Let me handle it, then. When can you get a hold of him? I'll, I'll call him tomorrow. It isn't easy, is it, John? You leave her standing there in the station, fighting to get her out of your mind and your heart, knowing that you must never let her come between you and the business at hand, the appointment with Mr. Gross. The next evening, you go to her apartment, determined to see it through. As you walk down the hall, the door is slightly open. No. You hear her no, talking on I the telephone. You no. stop still and listen. No, there isn't going to be any deal, Mr. Gross. Forget I ever told you to come here at 11. The appointment is off. I know what I told you, Mr. Gross, but that was before... Well, it, it's different now. I'm, I'm changing my plans. That's right. It's got to be this way for the present. Right. Goodbye. You stand there for a full minute, thinking, and then make up your mind. Two can play that kind of a game, can't they, John? And you know the one who wins is the one who gets there first. Yeah? It's me, C.O., your partner. Oh, John, come in. Where have you been all day? Why don't you call a guy? I've been waiting to hear from you. Did you get hold of Gross? Uh, oh, uh, yes, he's... He's not interested, John. <laughs> That's funny. Looked like a sure thing, didn't it? Guy has money, crazy about Italian well, pictures. What the others? Oh, sure, sure. Just takes a little time, huh? Mm, that'll be worth it. Yeah, I suppose it will. How about a drink? Um, I've got the car outside. It's a nice night. I thought you might like to go for a drive. Sounds wonderful. Maybe along the beach, huh? Uh-huh, I'll get my coat. Only be a minute. Take your time. No hurry. It doesn't take long, does it, John? Now that you've made up your mind to it, just a few miles of riding, talking idly, with the automatic hidden down beside you in the seat. Occasionally, you glance from the road at her beautiful face in the moonlight. That's something you'll never forget. That face with the moonlight working magic with her hair. It even looked beautiful a half hour later when you looked at it for the last time. Only then it was very still with a quiet, wax-like beauty of death. An hour later, you've dropped the automatic into a storm drain. You're back at her apartment, both halves of the claim check in your pocket, going through the wastebasket next to the telephone. Ah, here it is. A little slip of paper with the name Gross 
and a telephone number. Huh? Mr. Gross? Yes? I'm calling for C.O. Brickley. I have a message. Go ahead. Uh, Miss Brickley says the appointment is on again. She's changed her mind. Okay. 11 o'clock at the apartment. Right. 11 o'clock at the apartment. Yes, it was a long trail that finally ended in that Los Angeles police station. A trail that began in Italy with an artist who painted a pair of pictures in the manner of Montaigne and died because of them. Lieutenant Brady of Homicide has done his job now. The suspect has finally begun to crack. You know we've got the goods on you. Why don't you... Oh, stop it, will you? Stop it. All right, I'll stop it. You ready to talk? Yeah. Yeah, I'll talk. All right, let's have it, Ghost. The whole story and the whole truth. The guy in Italy, Donati. I killed him for the Brickley Dame. Money? Yeah. Why did she want him dead? I don't know. I didn't ask any questions. She sent me to Italy to kill him, and I did. When I got back here in L.A., she called me again. She wanted me to bump off another guy. Oh? But the night I was supposed to bump off this second guy, the Brickley Dame changed her mind. How come? I don't know, but she called up and said the deal was off. Then what? Later, I got a phone call that the deal was on again. So I went over to her apartment. And there he was. And that's how you happened to murder John Winters. That's it. I guess the Brittany dame changed her mind again. That whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler, each Sunday night at this same time. Brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil, and fine quality automotive accessories. Featured in tonight's story were Betty Lou Gerson and William Conrad. The Whistler was produced and directed by George W. Allen, with story by Joel Malone and Harold Swanton, music by Wilbur Hatch, and was transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The Whistler is entirely fictional, and all characters portrayed on The Whistler are also fictional. Any similarity of names or resemblance to persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental. Remember, at the same time next Sunday, another strange tale by The Whistler. Marvin Miller speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A Woman's Privilege, the ironic title of an autumn 1949 episode of the always ironic series, The Whistler. It came to you from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Our audio engineer is Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org.
Today marks the beginning of the first Women's History Month since the release last year of a historical movie about a very famous American woman, an icon, in fact, Judy Garland. Some critics have noted that the Oscar-winning movie Judy reflects a new Hollywood attitude toward women, focusing, as it does, on the professional struggles and exploitation of a gifted artist rather than on her romantic life. Well, our focus this hour is on that gifted artist who is every bit as effective on the radio as she was in the movies. We're going to play the radio adaptation of one of her classic films, Vincente Minnelli's Meet Me in St. Louis, released in 1944. It featured a score that mixed old songs and new songs. The new ones, by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine, all became hits. The Trolley Song, The Boy Next Door, and Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And you'll hear them all. Along with Ms. Garland, the child star Margaret O'Brien is on hand. From CBS, December 2nd, 1946, a time when the turn of the 20th century was still well within living memory of many in the audience. It's the Lux Radio Theater production of MGM's Meet Me in St. Louis. Lux presents Hollywood. Lever Brothers Company brings you the Lux Radio Theater, starring Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake in Meet Me in St. Louis. Ladies and gentlemen, your producer, Mr. William Keeley. Greetings from Hollywood, ladies and gentlemen. The theme song of tonight's play is the title of Metro-Golden-Mare's screen hit, Meet Me in St. Louis, based on the novel of the same name by Sally Benson, currently playing in theaters all over the country. The title refers, of course, to the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1904. Ten million people attended it, but twice as many people in our listening audience will be going there tonight with three of Hollywood's most charming stars, Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake. They take you back to an era of nostalgic charm in a warm and haunting story of romance. On to Act One of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John, with Gail Gordon as Alonzo. In the year 1903, there lived in the city of St. Louis a family named Smith. There were Mr. and Mrs. Alonzo Smith and Grandpa Smith. There were also two daughters and a son, Rose, Esther, and Lonnie. Oh, yes, and another daughter, Tootie, aged seven, who at this moment perches next to Mr. Costello on Mr. Costello's ice wagon. My goodness, Tootie, at five o'clock. Giddy up, be dressed. Oh, how's your doll feeling now, Tootie? Any better? Oh, no. Poor Margaretha. I've never seen her look so pale. Mm, probably the heat. Been awful hot today. I doubt very much if Margaretha will live through the night. She has four fatal diseases. Mm, as rule, only takes one. 
She's going to have a beautiful funeral in a cigar box my papa gave me, all wrapped up in silver paper. Well, that's the way to go if you got to go. Oh, she's got to go. How's Beatrice feeling? Oh, Beatrice don't mind the heat. Why, she's the strongest horse in St. Louis. Excuse me, Mr. Costello, but it's pronounced St. Louis. That's funny. Now you take that their new song. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me. Oh, well, that's different. We sing that song all the time in our house. My sister Esther and my sister Rose and Grandpa and everybody. Well, St. Louis, St. Louis, it's still a grand old town. It's not a town, Mr. Costello. It's a city, and it's the only city that's going to have a World's Fair. Gosh, wasn't I lucky to be born in my favorite city? You sure were, honey. So was I, and so was Beatrice. That right, Beatrice? Come on, gal. Giddy up. Me in St. Louis, Louis, meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but there. We will dance the hoochie-coochie. You will be my tootsie-wootsie if you will meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at the fair. Hello, Papa. Did you just come home, Papa? The fair won't open for months, but that's all everybody talks about or sings about. Where's Mama? Here I am, dear. Well, did you have a nice day, Alonzo? I had a terrible day, Anna. I lost the case. Oh, dear. Oh, well, Papa, if losing a case depresses you so, why don't you give up law and go into some other business? All right, Esther, I will. Beginning tomorrow, I intend to play first base for the Baltimore Orioles. Right now, I'm going to soak in a cool bath for one solid hour. Oh, but that's impossible, Papa. Katie's serving dinner in five minutes. Five minutes? Alonzo, we, we planned on eating an hour earlier tonight. I'm taking a bath. Oh, Rose, dear, I'm so oh, sorry. But it's nothing to upset the entire household about. Warren Sheffield, a Yale man, is going to telephone you at 6.30, and you say it's nothing. Rose, the telephone's in the dining room. You certainly don't want the whole family sitting there drinking in every word when a man proposes long distance. I don't see why you assume Warren is going to propose to me. He's calling from New York. Do you know what that costs? Now, I think that's just about enough of this. Now, where's Tootie? Oh, she's delivering ice with Mr. Costello. No, she came back a few minutes ago. She's in the backyard burying her doll. Well, call her in and see that she gets washed. And Lonnie. Lonnie! Now, don't you worry, Rose, dear. Everything will work out all right. Mama, it's 6.30 and Papa isn't down yet. He will be. Tootie! Grandpa! Lonnie, come on, dinner! Has he telephoned yet, Rose? Grandpa, I'm not in the least concerned whether Mr. Sheffield calls or not. I suppose Warren's too young, huh? Every fellow I introduce her to is too young. Now, listen, children. Your father will be right down. If we eat dinner quickly, we may be finished, but the time... Oh, now I remember. Now I remember where I left my other roller skate. On the staircase. I hope I haven't held you up. I was just taking a little ride before dinner. <laughs> Tootie, is this your roller skate? Yes, Papa. Thank you. You're welcome. And remind me to spank you after dinner. Yes, Papa. Ah, soup. Don't blame me if it's cold, Mr. Smith. Oh, Katie. So is the corned beef. No, no, no. It's fine. Delicious. Well, what's the matter with everybody? Eat your soup. Oh, 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 Rose, let me get it. Telephone, telephone. What are you all jumping for? Sit still. I'll answer it. I'll die. I'll simply die. Hello? What? 
New York? No, I'm not calling New York. What? Hello? 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 Anna? I'm going to have that instrument of torture ripped out of this home. Oh, Alonzo, every telephone call's not for you, dear. Rose is crying. Well, what's the matter with you? <laughs> oh, it's nothing, Papa. You've just ruined Rose's chances to get married, that's all. What did you say? That was Warren Sheffield calling long distance to propose. Oh, I see. Tootie, did you know there was a long distance call coming to this house? You know what, Papa? The ice man saw a drunkard get shot yesterday and blood spurted out three feet. Answer and... yes or no. Yes. Lon? Grandpa? Anna? Well, and just when was I voted out of this family? Oh, Alonzo, really now that... My eldest daughter is practically on our honeymoon and everybody in St. Louis knows about it but me. Well, from now on, I'll handle all telephone calls to this house. But, Papa... Nobody answers the phone but me. But I... Thank you. Rose, answer the telephone. Thank you, Papa. Hello, Warren? How are you? Oh, I'm fine, Rose. How St. Louis? What did you say? I said, how St. Louis? Oh, it's fine. Uh, fine. Uh, can you hear me? Oh, yes, I can hear you the fine. The whole neighborhood can hear you. Well, uh... What did you say, Warren? Nothing, uh, nothing. I was waiting for you to say something. Oh. Uh, Rose, I... I hope you won't misunderstand what I'm going to tell you. Yes? Well, I... I don't think you should mention this call to your family. Why not? Well, because there'd be H to pay if my family ever found out I called you long distance. Oh, oh he said there'd be H. My family's here and they don't think anything of it. Well, I'd better not waste any more of your time or money. Rose, I've still got 35 Never seconds. Never mind. Well, Rose, I'll, I'll write to you as soon as I hang up. Well, that'll be very nice. Goodbye, Warren. Well, that's the darndest proposal I ever heard. Oh, well, of all things, he talks about the weather. Well, I'll bet there isn't another girl in St. Louis who's had a Yale man call her long distance just to inquire about her health. If, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to be excused. A Yale man, eh, Lonnie? Yes, Papa. That settles it. You're going to Princeton. It's nice just sitting on the front porch, isn't it, Rose? I just love a summer night. Esther, wasn't that silly of me, running away from the dinner table? Oh, Rose, I wish I had your... your savoir-faire. Your... look. Hmm? Next door, a new neighbor. John, true He's on the lawn. Now, for goodness sakes, don't let on that we see him. Ready? Yes. Let's, let, let, let's get a little closer to the railing. Isn't it a gorgeous night, Esther, dear? Heavenly, Rose. Just heavenly. He smokes a pipe. I understand they're having a fashion pavilion at the fair. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> I shan't be at all surprised if Joe insists on taking me to the fair every single night. Joe's so overpowering. Oh, prune. Huh? Well, look, he just walked back into his house. Oh. It's not very neighborly, I must say. Well, he's only lived here two weeks. You can't expect him to fling himself at you. How am I going to meet him? I know. I'll get George Briggs to bring him over here to Lon's going away party. Oh, Rose, could you? Of course. Let me get some stationery. We can write the invitations right now, tonight. He didn't even notice me. What if he can't come to our party? What if he's got a girl? The moment I saw him smile, I... He was just my style, my 
only regret is we've never met, though I dream of him all the while. But he doesn't know I exist, no matter how I may persist. So it's clear to see there's no hope for me, though I live at 5135 Kensington Avenue, and he lives at 5133. How can I ignore the boy next door? I love him more than I can say. Doesn't try to please me, doesn't even tease me, and he never sees me glance his way. And though I'm heart sore, the boy next door, affection for me won't display. Just adore him So I can't ignore him The boy next Dear Mr. Truitt, you are cordially invited to a party on Saturday next in honor of our brother, Alonzo Smith, Jr., who is living for Princeton. Cordially yours, Rose Smith. How's that, Ed? Well, it's pretty formal, but I guess we'd be, better be pretty formal to start with. Huh? Oh, Princeton's a peach of a school. A peach of a school. Well, that's where I'm going. I... Oh, Esther. Yes, Alonzo? Uh, may I present our neighbor, John Truitt? I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the name. John Truitt. Oh, <laughs> well, welcome to our house, Mr. Truitt. Well, thank you. You know, this is the first party I've been invited to since we moved to St. Louis. Oh, do you live here? Well, of course he lives here. Right next door. Oh, well, that's where I've seen you. I thought you looked familiar. <laughs> if this dance isn't taken, Miss Smith, I'd be very honored. Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but I... Oh, well, since you're our next door neighbor... Thank you. Oh, Miss Esther. Uh, yes, Mr. Truitt. There's a mouse in the house. Hmm? Look, on the hall stairs. Why, Tootie Smith, why aren't you asleep? There was too much noise down here. Noise? We've just been dancing and singing. I want to sing, too. <laughs> well, all right, just one song. Now, what would you like to sing, darling? Baby's Boat? Or did you ever see a rabbit climb a tree? Or... Oh, I hate those songs. I want to sing a new one. 
I was hmm, last night, dear mother. Well, you can't sing that. Well, do let her. She's such a sweet little thing. Sweet? She's a little hoodlum. Oh, well, all right. Go ahead, Tootie. I was drunk last night, dear mother. I was drunk the night before. But if you'll forgive me, mother, I'll never get drunk anymore. Tootie, you're a very bad little girl. It's really Lon's fault, Mr. Truett. He teaches her those things. Now, Tootie, you scoot right up to bed this instant. Uh, Rose, oh, Rose, dear, might we have some dance music, please? Looks like I'm the last one leaving. Uh, well, uh, good night, Miss Esther. Uh, good night. Yes, don't forget your beauty, please. Presently, Rose, dear. Well, I guess I'd better get going. Uh, well, uh, we'll be seeing some more of you, won't we? Oh, you bet. You, you'll be joining our crowd Friday. We're all taking the trolley out to the fairgrounds just to see what progress they're making. Oh, sure, sure. Well... Good night. Good night. Oh, uh, that Welch rabbit you served was ginger peachy. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. Oh, uh, Mr. Truett. Uh, yes, Miss Esther? Uh, this is a, an untoward request, but would you mind accompanying me through the house while I turn out the lights? Well, I... It's just that I, uh, I'm afraid of mice. <laughs> well, sure, sure. That's the least a man can do for his charming hostess. Those two lights in the hall, and then we'll be finished. Oh, if you can't see, just take my hand, Mr. Truett. Well, uh, thanks. This way. Say, uh, mm, that's nice perfume. Do you like it? It's essence of violet. Uh, exactly the same kind my grandmother uses. Uh, no, this is different. <laughs> well, here's the hall. Uh, hadn't we better save those lights for your folks? Well, I'll just turn them down dim. There. My, it's certainly dark in here with the lights off, isn't it? Gosh, Miss Esther, I hope I'm not too presumptuous, but you don't need any beauty sleep. Oh, what a nice thing to say. Oh, this has been a great evening. I'll never forget it. Do you mean that? Yes, yes, I do. Do you always... Shake hands with the girl when you say goodnight? Oh, no, no, sir. Only when I... Well, when I think an awful lot of her. Oh. A and you know something else, Esther? What? You've got a mighty strong grip for a girl. <laughs> Good night, Esther. Good night, neighbor. Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake will return for Act Two of Meet Me in St. Louis in a moment. Here's your producer, William Keeley. Act Two of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John. <laughs> Well, Friday's come, and with it, the trolley ride to the fairgrounds. Now take a trolley, fill it with boys and girls, 
and sooner or later, somebody singing. In this instance, it's Miss Esther Smith, who finds ample reason to sing, for sitting next to her, thoroughly smitten, is the boy next door, John Truitt. With my high starch collar and my high top shoes and my hair piled high upon my head, I went to lose a jolly hour on the trolley and lost my heart instead. With his light brown derby and his bright green tie, he was quite the handsomest of men. I started to yen, so I counted to ten, then I counted to ten again. Clang went the trolley, ding, ding, ding went the bell, zing, zing, zing went my heartstrings, from the moment I saw him I fell. Chug, chug, chug went the motor, bump, bump, bump went the brake, thump, thump, thump went my heartstrings, when he smiled I could feel the car shake. He tipped his hat and took a seat He said he hoped he hadn't stepped upon my feet He asked my name, I held my breath I couldn't speak because he scared me half to death Buzz, buzz, buzz with the buzzer Plop, plop, plop with the wheels Stop, stop, stop went my heartstrings As he started to go then I started to know how it feels when the to leave I took hold of his sleeve with my hand and as if it were planned he stayed on with me and it was grand just to stand with his hand holding mine till the end of the It's a few weeks later now, Halloween, and at the Smith home, disguised in sagging pants, a long red nose, and bristling mustaches, Miss Tootie Smith is about to brave the thrills and terrors of this ghost-ridden night. And wait you see what I do to Mr. Bruckhoff. Do you know what Mr. Bruckhoff does, Esther? Minds his own business, as far as I know. He buys meat and poison, and then he puts it all together and kills cats. Thousands of cats. And when he's not killing cats, he beats his wife with a red-hot poker. My goodness. Glennie Travis told me. Are you going out with Glennie and the rest of those ragamuffins? They're all down at the corner. They got a big red bonfire. That's so the banshees will know where to come. I'm going to oh. go, and Oh, dear. Oh, oh don't my. be afraid, Mama. It's only me. Oh, Oh, why, I thought some horrible ghost had come into the house. Oh, I'm horrible, all right. 
I was murdered last week in a den of thieves. Well, here it is, Judy. Here's your flower. Thanks, Grandpa. You wouldn't catch me out on a night like this for a million dollars. Why not? Too many terrible spirits roaming around. Grandpa. Oh, go on, Tootie. It's Halloween. I just hope I get back to my bed and board all right. If you wet the flower before you throw it, it's harder for the victims to get it off. Well, goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Well, all right, everybody, I guess we're all ready to yeah. go. Yeah. I'm ready, Kenny, too. Look at the Geneva hammock on the front porch. And would the children please bring it back after they're through stealing it? Maybe we will and maybe we won't. Anyway, you ain't coming. Why not? Because you're too little, Tootie. Hey, who's going to take the Brokoff's house? Not me. Mr. Brokoff's got a great big beard. And a great big bulldog. And he poisons cats and beats oh, his wife. Oh, why don't you go home? Well, somebody's got to take the Brokoff's. I'll take him. I'll take the Brokoff's. Oh, oh my God, I got on home till you grow up. I won't go home. I won't. I'm going to take the Brokoff's. I'll torture him good and pull their roof down. Well, you got some flour? Yes. Just remember, if you don't hit Mr. Brockoff in the face with a flower and say I hate you, the Banshees will haunt you forever. They will? Well, what do you think? Well, here I go. You come back when your mission is over. We'll be meeting here around the fiery furnace. Oh, Lordy, I sure wish Esther was here. I can't do it. I can't. I'm too scared. Well, what do you want? Don't try to run away. Yes, Mr. Brokoff. Did you ring my doorbell, ghost? Yes, sir. Well, go on. Throw the flower on me. Oh, all right. Some more. On my beard. Yes, sir. Now say it. Say it. I, I hate you, Mr. Brokoff. That's fine, Tootie. Good night, dear. <laughs> I'm the most horrible. I'm the most horrible of everybody. That you, Judy? I'm coming. Well, did you have a nice... Why, Glennie. Esther, you better come quick. Something happened to Tootie. What are you talking about? Down by the trolley. She got hurt, Esther. She's bleeding like anything. Oh. <laughs> Esther, did you get Pop on the telephone? No, Mama, they said he just left. It's Tootie's lip, Mama. It's all cut. Oh, good heavens. And a tooth knocked out. Oh, Katie, another compress. There, there, darling. Everything's going to be fine. He tried to kill me. Why, Tootie. She must mean the streetcar. I think it hit her. It wasn't the streetcar. It, it was John Truitt. Oh, John no. Truitt. John Truitt? He was going to kill me. That's how I got hurt. When I screamed, he ran away. Tootie Smith, that's a monstrous falsehood. Now, wait a minute, Tootie. What's that in your hand? Why, why, it's some strands of hair. Yes, and I don't think it's Tootie's. I yanked it out of his head. He tried to kill me. Brown hair. John Truitt has brown hair. Excuse me. Oh, is that you, Esther? Oh, hello, Esther. John Truitt. Yes, Hey, wait a minute. I've come here to ask you something. Hey, cut it out, Esther. The next time you pick, hey, on, somebody, it out. pick on somebody your own size, what do you mean hitting a seven-year-old child? Esther. If there's anything I hate, loathe, despise, and abominate, it's a bully. <laughs> I 
want to sleep in Esther's bed, Mama. Of course, darling. Oh, I hate to think what your father's going to say when he hears about this. He may even strike that truit boy. He won't have to, Mama. I just took care of him. I was drunk last night, dear Mother. I was drunk the night before. Esther, your dress. Oh, that must have happened when he was trying to hold me off. I bit him. I bit him, too. Did you, Tootie? That's not what Tommy Berkheimer says. I've just been talking to him. Did the trolley go off the gra- tracks, Grandpa? No, but the cable came off when the motorman put on the brakes so fast. At least that's what Tommy tells me. What are you talking about? It seems the kids had found an old suit of clothes, so they stuffed it with straw and somebody put it on the trolley tracks. We thought the car had off the tracks. Tootie Smith, why, you're nothing less than a murderer. You might have killed dozens of people. Oh, Rose, you're so stuck up. Tootie, how did you get that lip? How? Because John Trude butted in. He dragged me up an alley so the policeman wouldn't get me. Huh. As though policemen never pay attention to girls. But I yanked his hair out and got away. Then I fell down and cut my lip. Oh, what I'm going to do to you is leave her alone. (laughs) Well, what's so funny? Tootie, honestly, you're the most deceitful, sinful little creature I've ever seen. And for two cents, I... Merciful heavens. John! Oh, no, Esther, not again, please. Oh, John, John, there's been a terrible mistake. There has? Oh, yes, you see, I... Oh, did I do that? Black eye, and this, and this, and this. Oh, I'm terribly sorry. Oh, that's all right. How's Tootie? Oh, she'll live. Oh, John, it's, it's awfully nice of you to accept my apology. Well, if you're not busy tomorrow night, could you beat me up again? <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess I better be getting home. Oh, uh, before you go, would you mind helping me turn out the lights? I'm afraid of mice. <laughs> Looks like most of the lights are out. Wouldn't take a minute to turn them on again. Well, wouldn't that be kind of wasting a minute? Yeah. Yeah, I guess it would, Esther. strong grip for a boy. If I ever catch you fibbing again, Tootie, I'll give you something that you'll... Oh, Esther, dear, I hope... Why, Esther, is there something wrong? Yes, Mama. Roses are red and John's name is Toot. Esther's in love and we always knew oh, it. Mama, can't you make Tootie stop? This where the Smith family lives? Why, hello. Come on in. Hello. Oh, home, Papa. I almost got killed. We stopped the trolley and I lost my tooth and Esther bit John Toot. And Anna. Tootie uh, fell, dear, and cut her lip. She's fine. Oh, that's a brave little girl, Tootie. Oh, uh, Anna, for you. Why, Alonzo, what a lovely box of candy. Is anything wrong? Anna, the firm is sending me to New York. Well, that's lovely, dear. Just as long as you'll be home for Thanksgiving. No, you don't understand. I'm to head the office there. We're moving to New York. Moving? To New York? Why, I don't believe it. Oh, I simply don't believe it. Why, Anna, I thought you'd be overjoyed. But New York is such a big city, and... Well, what'll the children do? The same as they do here. Go to school, play, have their friends over. 
What friends, Alonzo? Yes, what friends? The friends they'll meet in New York. And Tootie just ready to be promoted. And Esther a senior. I've worked all my life to be a senior. And Rose in the Conservatory of Music. Yes, what about me in my life? You can take that with you. It's settled. We're going. Well, I must say you're being very cold-blooded. Well, I've got our future to think about. I've got to worry about where the money's coming from. With Lon in Princeton and Rose in Music School and Tootie... Money. I hate, loathe, despise, and abominate money. You also spend it. And what about Katie and Grandpa and the chickens? Not that we have many left. That's a minor detail we can discuss later. So I'm a minor detail, am I? You know very well, Papa, I was talking about the chickens. Oh, never mind what happens to your family, as long as the chickens are provided for. Now, 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 I guess we're all a little excited. We'll talk this over calmly tomorrow. Well, what's this? Hickory nut cake, as only Katie can make it. I can't go to New York. I simply can't. I'm taking my cat. Winona goes wherever I go. Well, you keep her cooped up in a tenement. Oh, good evening, Katie. Couldn't help overhearing. Don't they have houses in New York? Rich people have houses. People like us live in flats. Thousands of people in one building. And what about the World's Fair? Yes, just when St. Louis is going to be the center of, of attraction of the entire universe. Katie, this cake is as light as a feather. You can bake anything in our stove. They got little box stoves in them tenements. <clears throat> uh, pass your plates, everybody. Have some cake. Thanks. I guess I got some things to do. Excuse me. Are you going up too, Grandpa? I, uh, I'll help Katie with the ice cream dishes, Mom. Me too. As long as we're moving, it won't matter if I break some. Aren't you afraid, Anna? Alone in this room with a, a criminal? Now, dear, if you think it's best to move to New York, why, why that's what we'll do. Eat your cake, Alonzo. Good to hear you play, Anna. My, that's a nice song. Remember when I used to sing it? Yes. <clears throat> All dark and farewell, girl. And that's, that's just lovely. Tootie and I. Well, I, I guess we'll have some cake after all. I want the piece with the rose petals. Mighty nice song. Mighty nice. Rose and I... Well, there's nothing like good music in a piece of hickory cake. No, sir. And you know, I'll bet New York is, is going to be just... just fine... We pause now for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. We return you now to William Keeley. Act three of Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland as Esther, Margaret O'Brien as Tootie, and Tom Drake as John. (laughs) 
It's the day before Christmas, a week before the family moves to New York, and five hours before the annual Christmas ball at the Women's Club. And Alonzo Smith, Jr., home from Princeton for the holidays, has a problem. Oh, Lonnie, you needn't be so grouchy just because Lucille Ballard doesn't think you're good enough to take her to the dance tonight. A girl has a right to go to a dance with anyone she wants. I, I just didn't ask her soon enough. Everyone knows Miss Ballard is just an eastern snob. Well, you're in a fine mood. All because Warren Sheffield asked her instead of you. That's not true. Rose could have had any man she wanted. Except Warren Sheffield. Everyone knows that Lucille Ballard is just throwing herself at Warren because of his father's money. Now, that's what I call real Christmas spirit. Now, just a minute, Katie. Didn't it ever occur to you that you might take your sister to the dance? My own brother. I'd be the laughing stock of St. Louis. Well, thank you. Oh, Katie's absolutely right. Oh, Lon, it's our last dance in St. Louis, and it'd be tragic if either of you missed it. All right for you. You to talk. You have a date, a real one. Well, Rose, if I didn't have a date with John Truitt, which I have, I'd be thrilled to go with my own brother. Well, I'd be willing, Rose. I mean, I'd be glad to. You would? Why, you two will have the best time of anybody. You won't even have to be polite to each other. Oh, yes, it's half past seven. Oh, oh yes, you look grand, oh. simply grand. That oh. corset makes your figure just elegant. Oh, I feel elegant, but I can't breathe. But if we're going to wreck Lucille Ballard's evening, we definitely need every ounce of allure. Oh, Rose, don't you think I could be alluring without a corset? No, Esther, I don't. After all, you're competing with an Eastern girl. We'll have to monopolize all the worthwhile men. <laughs> Well, there'll only be about 20 boys worth looking at. We could certainly handle 20 men. But what about John Truett? Oh, I'll devote myself to John. But in between times, I'm going to make my presence felt amongst the others. Oh, Esther. What is it, Tootie? Somebody is the back door to see you. Who? <laughs> Gosh, do you look funny. Tootie. Rose, could I please wear a corset, now, too? Tootie. Who's at the back door? Oh, somebody that looks like John Truett. Oh, uh, Rose, give me my kimono. I wonder what he could want. What are you giving me for Christmas, Rose? You'll find out tomorrow. I certainly hope it's a hunting night. Nothing I need worse than a good hunting night. Oh, John. Well, come on in. Yes. I've got some bad news. My, my tuxedo. Well, what about it? It's at the tailor's. You see, I was playing basketball, and when I got there, it was closed. Can't you borrow one? I've tried, but everybody who's got one is going to the ball. What about your father's? That was my father's. Well, then find the tailor and make him open the shop. Well, I know his name is Johnson, but I don't know where he lives. Oh, oh this is simply ghastly. Oh, yes, I wouldn't blame you if you never spoke to me again. Oh, you, you didn't do it on purpose. I guess there's nothing else I can say. Unless you want to do something else tonight. No, I, I'd better just stay home and do some packing. You know, we're leaving St. Louis in a few days. I know. And this is a fine going-away present I'm giving you. I'll bet you really hate me. Oh, no, John, I don't hate you. I just hate basketball. Isn't the awful, Esther? I wish I were dead, that's all. Well, there's only one thing to do. Lon will have to take both of us. You don't think I'm going to the smartest ball of the season with my own brother, do well, you? I like that. You wanted me to go with him. You didn't have a date. But I can't handle 20 men alone. I admit it. Did you ever stop? 
stop to think of what people oh, would come say. In. Come in, Grandpa. You know, the man who built this house cheated your father. The walls are thin as paper. Oh, Grandpa. Now, now, now. <laughs> Esther, it's a funny thing. I took my tuxedo out of the mothballs only yesterday. Looked pretty good, too. That suit of mine does the greatest one step you ever saw. Grandpa, are you actually... Esther, what's this toot he says about you're not going to the dance? Who says I'm not going? Of course I'm going. With the handsomest man in town. Madame, I'll pick you up at eight. Esther, Esther, I'm here. I John. made it. Oh, gosh, yes. I didn't find Mr. Johnson until 20 minutes at 10. But he opened up the shop, and well, here I am. Oh, John, so much has happened, and I'm so glad. And if I'm crying, it's just because everything's turned out so simply, divinely, and it's Christmas almost, and I... But what's happened? No, don't you see them dancing? Rose and Warren Sheffield. Miss Ballard's a simply charming girl, even if she is an Easterner. She said we're all grown up, aren't we? And since all Warren talks about is Rose, my goodness, why doesn't he fill her dance card? Who's Lucille dancing with? Oh, Lonnie, of course. Oh, she's terribly fond of him. It's really so obvious. And now you're here. Oh, John, I've never been so happy in my life. Esther, could we... Could we go outside for a minute? I want to talk to you. Well, of course, John, if you like. Oh, I wouldn't have said it, Esther, if I thought it would make you cry again. Are you sure you're warm enough? Uh-huh. Oh, I've imagined you saying it thousands of times that I always planned exactly how I'd act. I never planned to cry. Well, at least you didn't laugh. Laugh? I guess I never asked a girl to marry me before. I guess maybe I was kind of... Oh, well... John, no one could have done it more beautifully. I'm very proud. Esther, will you... Oh, will you, Esther? Of course I will, John. Oh, gosh. Do you realize I might have lost you? A few more days and you'd have been gone. We might never have seen each other again. And now we're engaged. Esther, let's go home and tell your folks right now. Oh, no. Uh, not tonight. I, I'd, I'd rather just the two of us knew about it tonight. Now, we're not going to let them talk us out of it. After all, we are of age. Well, practically... John, even even if I it did go to New York, we we could still work something out somehow, couldn't we, John? Merry Christmas, John. Merry Christmas, Esther. bed with you, Esther? Of course, darling. Come on now, cover up. You weren't asleep either, were you? Mm-mm. I've just been lying here, thinking. Was the dancing nice? Wonderful. I've been watching. The moon's so bright, but I haven't seen anything. Did he come? Did who come? Santa Claus. <laughs> now you know he's not going to come until you're fast asleep. Then sing to me, Esther. Sing to me till I'm asleep. 
All right. What kind of song, darling? A Christmas song. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. Next year all our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. know where to find us next year. We'll be in New York. Oh, you can't fool him. He can find anybody he wants to find. If he brings me any toys, I'm taking them with me. I'm taking my dolls and the dead ones, too. I'm taking everything. Of course you are. You won't have to leave anything behind. Except your snowmen, of course. My snowmen? Well, we'd look pretty silly trying to get the snowmen on the train now, wouldn't we? Snowmen, my snowmen. Tootie, come back here. My poor little snowmen. What's going to happen to them? Snowmen, snowmen. Tootie, darling, it's, it's all right. It's all right. What on earth happened, Esther? What was Tootie doing in the backyard? She just ran out, Papa, and it started to smash all her snowmen. Nobody's going to have my snowmen. Not if we're moving to New York. Oh, don't cry, darling. You can build other snowmen in New York. No, you can't. You can't do anything in New York like you can in St. Louis. You sure she'll be all right? Yes, Papa, you go back to bed. I'll take care of her. Well, good night, Esther. Good, good night. Tootie, darling, New York's a wonderful place. Wait till you see the fine home we're going to have and the friends we're going to make. But the main thing, Tootie, is we're all going to be together, just like we've always been. That's what really counts. We could be happy anywhere as long as we're together. Anna! Anna, wake up! Rose! What? 
Grandpa, Lonnie, everybody, get up. Esther, Trudy, come on, all of you, come on downstairs. Uh, Papa, Papa, what's wrong? Everything's wrong. Anna, where are you? Grandpa, come downstairs this minute. Now, everybody get in here and sit down. There's nothing to sit on, Alonzo. Nothing but packing boxes. Then come into the dining room. I've got a few words to say to this family. Well, what is it, for heaven's sake? Well... We are not moving to New York. And I don't want to hear a word about it. We're going to stay right here in St. Louis till we rot. We haven't rotted yet, Alonzo. But what do you say to the firm, Papa, to Mr. Fenton? That I've changed my mind. I'm a junior partner, not a puppet on a string. But New York, Alonzo, you you did think it was a fine opportunity, didn't you? Well, I, I was looking forward to going, yes. But after all these weeks, watching my family's hearts breaking and... And then Tootie a little while ago and... <laughs> well, New York hasn't got a copyright on opportunity. The trouble with you people is you don't appreciate St. Louis because it's right here under your noses. I'll take that. Oh! Is this you, Rose? Oh, I mean... Do I sound like Rose? Well, then get her to the phone. Wake her up or something. Now, just a minute, young man. Who do you think you're Papa, talking to? Papa, Papa, I... please let me take it. Hello? Rose Smith, I haven't slept a wing since I took you home from the dance, and I won't go on like this any longer. Warren. We're going to get married, and I don't want to hear any arguments. Now, that's final. Oh, I love you. Warren, but... Warren. Anna, who is that boy? Do you know? Alonzo, he's a very fine young man. Now, we'll talk about it later. Oh, Rose, darling, you handle the whole thing magnificently. He's just putty in your hands. (sighs) Well, I hope you'll be very happy, Rose. And sometime, if you can arrange it... I'd like to meet that young fellow. Papa, Mama, if Rose is going to get married, maybe we had better open up her Christmas presents now. (laughs) You little faker. It's your presents you're after. He's been here. Santa Claus. Well, of course, in the living room. Oh, good heavens. It's Christmas morning. Merry Christmas, thank you, Papa. You've given us the nicest Christmas anybody could ask for. We're staying in St. Louis. Good morning, Mr. Costello. Good morning, today. Going to help me deliver ice today? Today? Do you know what today is? Sure do. First day of May, 1904. It's fair day, Mr. Costello. Today's the day the World's Fair opens. My family's going, and Papa says we're not coming home till they throw us out. Is that a fact? Well, gee up, Mr. Hess. But don't you worry. I'll help you deliver ice tomorrow. John, it's 8 o'clock. We promised to meet the family for dinner at the French Pavilion. Oh, we'll be there, Esther. I just didn't want you to miss this. Miss what, John? The electric lights. Look, Es, they're turning them on. Oh. Here they come. Oh. Oh. John, it, it, it's just breathtaking. I never dreamed anything could be so beautiful. Imagine there's never been anything like this in the whole world. That's right, Es. There's nothing like this. And no one like you. Just think of all the things we'll have to tell our kids someday. I wonder if they'll believe it, John. I can hardly believe it myself. You and and a World's Fair right here where we live. Right here in St. Louis. Before our stars return to the microphone, I'd like to tell you about Mrs. Brown. The Browns had some friends in for dinner recently, and after they finished, Mrs. Green said... Let's do the dishes now, Mary. I'll give you a hand. Oh, thanks. It really won't take long. Optimist. 
But I always say you can talk just as well in the kitchen as anywhere. Want me to wash? Oh, no. That's the easiest part. Who do you think you're kidding? Look at these dishpan hands of mine. Oh, I have luck. You have? Where'd you get it? Down at the corner. Some came in while I was there the other day. Lucky. I haven't been able to get any lately. Mm, I guess you've just struck it wrong. We're all so sick of those strong soaps that Lux goes like hotcakes. Do strong soaps bother your hands, too? Do they? Why, mine looked worse than yours. But soon as I switched to Lux, they started getting better. Note that, Mrs. Green. Tests prove changing to Lux Flakes does just what Mrs. Brown says. It takes away that ugly dishpan redness. You'll begin to notice improvement in just a few days. Another thing, you have to use so much of that strong soap to get sucked. I know. But you saw how little Lux Flakes I put in the dishpan. And look what rich suds they make. Those richer suds will actually go further, Mrs. Green. Do you know that ounce for ounce, Lux does up to twice as many dishes as other leading soaps tested? If I get my hands on a box of Lux Flakes, I'll go easy with it. I don't want to waste a spoonful. Yes, Lux is precious, Mrs. Green. Too precious to be wasted. Of course, you're disappointed when you can't find Lux Flakes right off. We're making as much as we can, but there just isn't enough to satisfy all our customers all the time. So please be patient and keep asking. When you do find Lux Flakes, you'll be delighted how soft and smooth they leave your hands, in spite of dishwashing. Here's Mr. Keeley at the microphone. Now that you've met them in St. Louis, we invite you to meet them as they are in real life. Tonight's delightful stars, Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake. Judy, we enjoyed both your singing and your acting. <laughs> well, Bill, tonight's play certainly puts one in the mood for Christmas. You know, Christmas is only 23 days away. <laughs> hey, that's pretty close figuring, Margaret. And, Judy, this will be the first Christmas for the newest member of your family. Have you brought the baby any presents yet, Judy? Well, I haven't done much shopping yet, Margaret. Judy's been pretty busy. It was just recently she finished her latest Metro-Golden-Mare Technicolor picture till the clouds rolled by. And Margaret's been pretty busy, too. She's been appointed National Junior Chairman of the Infantile Paralysis Fund. Just three weeks and 48 hours until Christmas. <laughs> and during the Christmas holidays, Margaret, you'll have to see Tom Drake's new MGM picture, Courage of Lassie. <laughs> As a matter of fact, Margaret has one of Lassie's puppies. Is that right, Margaret? Yes, and I named him Laddie. But just think only 18 shopping days until Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Margaret. And we've been doing some shopping on a play for next week. What are you presenting next week, Bill? Two brilliant stars who rank among our greatest favorites. Irene Dunn and Walter Pidgeon. They appeared in one of the screen's most entertaining comedies. Columbia Pictures' recent hit, Together Again. It's the fresh, delightful story of a woman torn between love and her career as a small-town mayor. A play I'm sure our audience will love. Well, Irene Dunn and Walter Pidgeon really make a great team, Mr. Keeling. And remember, only 20, 23 days until Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and remember, too, the days are getting shorter, Margaret. <laughs> See, that makes things even better. Good night. Good, Good night. night. And best holiday wishes to you all. <laughs> Lever Brothers Company, the makers of Lux Flakes, join me in inviting you to be with us again next Monday evening when the Lux Radio Theater presents Irene Dunn and Walter Pigeon in Together Again. This is William Keeley saying goodnight to you from Hollywood.
More than two million servicemen returning to civilian life are homeless. Help out by making your extra rooms available to rent and by listing your sales or rentals with the Veterans Housing Center. Judy Garland, Margaret O'Brien, and Tom Drake appeared by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, producers of The Secret Heart. Heard in our cast tonight were Gail Gordon as Alonzo, Colleen Gray as Rose, Regina Wallace as Mrs. Smith, Norman Field as Grandpa, and Billy Roy, Noreen Gamil, Dick Ryan, Clark Gordon, Charles Seal, Truda Marson, Johnny McGovern, Joel Davis, Jerry Farber, Howard Jeffrey, and Lois Kennison. Our music was directed by Louis Silvers. This program is broadcast to our men and women overseas through cooperation with the Armed Forces Radio Service. And this is your announcer, John Milton Kennedy, reminding you to tune in again next Monday night to hear Together Again with Irene Dunn and Walter Pidgeon. Meet Me in St. Louis, starring Judy Garland and Margaret O'Brien from Lux Radio Theater in the fall of 1946. It brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We're going to close with the number one hit record from 75 years ago today, and it's a record that remained number one for a remarkable ten consecutive weeks. It's a song that was not without controversy. It was originally credited to Paul Barron, Jerry Sullivan, and the comedian Maury Amsterdam, whom you may remember from the Dick Van Dyke Show on TV. But after a successful plagiarism suit by the famous attorney Louis Neiser, it was proved that the song had been adapted from a 1906 Trinidadian tune by Lionel Belasco and Massey Patterson, with a later lyric by the Calypso star Lord Invader. What's beyond controversy, though, is that it was one of the biggest hits of World War II. Recorded for Decca Records, October 18, 1944, here are Patty, Maxine, and Laverne, the Andrews sisters, with rum and Coca-Cola. For co-producer Jill Errold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. Trinidad, they make you feel so very glad. Calypso sing and make up rhyme, guarantee you one real good fine time. Drinking rum and Coca-Cola, go down point to Mana, both mother and daughter, working for the Yankee dollar. The Yankee come to Trinidad They got the young girls all going mad Young girls say they treat them nice Make Trinidad like paradise Drinking rum and Coca-Cola Go down Point Kumana Both mother and daughter Working for the Yankee dollar Oh, you vex me, you vex me Chicka chick carry to Mona's Isle. Native girls all dance and smile. Help soldier celebrate his leave. Make every day like New Year's Eve. Drinking rum and Coca Cola. Go down Point Kumana. Both mother and daughter working for the Yankee Dollar. It's a fat man. It's a fat
situation is mighty queer Like the Yankee girl, the native swoon When she hear der bingle croon Drinking rum and Coca-Cola Go down point Kumana Both mother and daughter Working for the Yankee dollar Out on Manzanella Beach She I romance was made of peach All night long make tropic love Next day sit in hot sun and cool off Drinking rum and Coca-Cola Go down point Kumana Both mother and daughter Working for the Yankee dollar It's a fact, man, it's a fact Rum and Coca-Cola Rum and Coca-Cola I'm Allie Schweitzer from WMU's Affordability Desk. Rent is high here, and buying, well, that just seems impossible sometimes. We're spending all year looking into what it would take to make the region more affordable. Follow along at wamu.org slash affordability. Hi, I'm DCS Senior Editor Rachel Kurzius. Want to keep up with the city's culture and curiosities? We've got you covered. Sign up for our daily newsletter at dcs.com slash sign up. 